tetragrammaton. I love the book. I love the book. It also has that feeling of when people say, you already have all the wisdom in you. Yes. If you could just tune into it. When I listen to the book, it all sounds familiar. Yes. In a way that is very helpful. Great. The intention was for it to be an invitation to tap into what's already there and to open up possibilities of ways in. But mm -hmm. that's all. It doesn't tell you how to do anything. That's all. It's all. Yeah. Up, that's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's saying, "Come on in. <laughs> the water's yeah. great." But that's. I mean, that's the toughest part. When I when I think about how I learned about any of that, mm. and I'm still learning about it. Like, when did I ever connect spirituality to creativity? And it, it must have been when I met Chandler, because before then, it was like. Rodney Dangerfield, what do we do? We write jokes. And how can we be funny? And all the comedians that I loved, and Gary was the first person to hand me a book. I think he gave me a book called Feather on a Fan. And another one was called Turning Problems into Happiness, which blew my mind because my parents never talked religion. Yeah. Not negatively or positively. It did not come up as a subject mm. ever. So you're an only child or you had brothers and sisters? Older brother, younger sister. Mm -hmm. So to have anyone say, oh, there's more to life than this, it literally had not happened yeah. till my early 20s meeting Gary. And all of it was about when something bad happens, think that it's good because it's an opportunity to learn something or evolve in some way. And that was not what my house was like. Did he ever <laughs> talk about how he got into the more spiritual side of things? He did talk about meditating, mm -hmm. but not knowing that's what he was doing. So he said he started just going to the woods or going to the beach and just sitting there for hours and hours. And then he said later he realized, oh, that's meditating. Yeah. But I, I also, in making the documentary, learned that when he was young, they had a foreign exchange student come to live with them. And so I don't know if Buddhism became part of their house and their discussions uh, from that or not. There were pictures of Gary growing up where there were Buddhas in his wow. Jewish household. Yeah. But I don't know who, who was interested and who placed them. It certainly didn't seem like that's how his mom was raising him with that kind of philosophy. Yeah, it's also odd that he, where he came from was different than all of the other comedians. Yes. You know, it seems like everyone we know was from the New York area, was mm -hmm. a big hub, but he was interestingly Jewish and from Arizona. Yes. Odd. Absolutely. Super odd. And he was interested in comedy. I mean, the, all the stories around Gary and comedy are so fascinating. I was listening to your book and you were talking about seeing signs in the world like being open to that, that things are there, you know, for a reason. And that's always been something that I try to open up to, but there's a part of me that resists it, but it does happen all the time. And Gary's a great example of that because he's in Arizona. 
George Carlin is playing in town. He writes a bunch of jokes and routines for George Carlin. He's just a college student. And George Carlin reads them and says, I write my own stuff, but there's something really funny on every page. And I think you should pursue this. And Gary gets in the car and moves to LA. Incredible, incredible story. Magic story. Yes, totally. Yeah, one in a million story. Meant to be. Meant to be. And then I was going through his things and I found a letter that he wrote to George Carlin. I think he didn't send it. And it was five or six years later and he, he was just telling George his progress. I'm working at the comedy store. I've written some episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter, or whatever. And I want you to know how important you are to me. And then he said, not just as a creative person, but as a man. And the way that you have evolved and speak your truth, that that's a, a real inspiration for me. And I, I don't know if he ever sent it. I don't think he did. But it, it's a beautiful, beautiful letter. I also found a piece of paper when he was very young, he wrote the idea for a TV show. And it's about a guy who goes to Hollywood to be a comedian and is dealing with all the issues of ego and the dark side. And I thought, wow, in the mid seventies, he was pitching something that was like the Larry Sanders show. Unbelievable. Also so interesting that when he had the opportunity to host the show, the Tonight Show or mm -hmm. the after the Tonight, e either way, he chose to do the meta version instead mm -hmm. to do the show that like looks at it from behind. It's so interesting. It's such a great show, such a great idea. It completely broke down the walls of what was possible. He, he said that he was at the Tonight Show and little Richard was fighting or yelling at the producer of the show, Fred DeCordova. And he just thought, well, that's a show. Trying to figure out that conversation. Yeah. How do you make little Richard happy right now? Yeah. And he found that so much more interesting, the personality of someone who wants to do that job. Because when we were doing the Larry Sanders show, he kept getting offered the 1230 slots, yeah. syndicated versions or after the NBC or CBS one. And it was really good money, but he also thought, I don't think I can do this every night and make it as great as I would want it to be. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could keep my quality level mm -hmm. as high as I want it to be. And I'm more interested in looking at these characters who work on a show than I am making the show. It's just such an interesting idea. It's like an X-ray of the show instead of the show. It's so, so cool, so interesting, so innovative. That's what's the most interesting comedies to me are, are things that like, break through to this new level. I, it was one thing I wanted to talk about. If you can remember from childhood, what were like the breakthrough things that you saw that was like, okay, this is different than everything I've seen before. All the ones that you can remember, even up till today. Well, I was, I would, I was born in 1967. So when Saturday Night Live hit, I was eight years old, but aware of it, mm -hmm. strangely. I, I can't quite remember what year I started watching. Certainly by 77 at 10, I was watching, but maybe before even, because you I would remember based on the musical acts. Did you see yeah. meatloaf? I'm trying to think of like the musical acts. I remember from that period because it did expose me to most of the music me too. Me because too. people always forget that back then you didn't see bands get interviewed. 
Mm-hmm. You never saw Led Zeppelin talk. You never saw the, I mean, the Who had the great documentary, The Kids Are All Right, but a band like Yes was so mysterious just because there weren't even music videos at that time. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of it I saw on Saturday Night Live, like Joe Cocker. I always yeah. remember Joe Cocker being on the show. Paul Simon certainly was doing amazing things on the show. And I remember he played Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes before the album came out, which was wild. Oh, this album isn't even out. Now, I don't think it came out for a while. And that was a mind blower. But comedically, I think I was I was really into the Mike Douglas show and the Dinah Shore show and certainly like 70s variety, corny comedy while being home listening to to George Carlin and Richard Pryor. But Saturday Night Live fascinated me. I just knew, oh, something something really different is happening. And back then, you didn't know if you would ever see the rerun. Yeah, You didn't know if certain episodes would ever be aired again, so I would tape them with an audio cassette recorder yeah. because it really felt like this may be the only time for the rest of my life I see this. Yeah, And now it's such a different feeling with content Yeah, because <laughs> back then it really felt important and precious and that it was just going to dissolve so after it ended. I used to tape the comedians on The Tonight Show, the sets. Mm-hmm. It would always tape Rodney, always, anytime yeah. he was on. And it was the only way to reference. I would both write down the jokes and yeah. tape them at the same time. <laughs> That's why YouTube is so dangerous for me because as someone that would do what you're talking about, I mean, I would transcribe the sketches so I could understand how they worked. The idea that right now I could go on YouTube and just type in Richard Pryor and there's thousands of <laughs> appearances. Like I could never leave the house. Yeah. I was the kid that would go to the public library and look up the obituaries of Lenny Bruce and Jimi Hendrix. Because that was the only way to find out anything. Yeah. So I would get the microfiche and I would print it and take these Lenny Bruce articles home. I, I looked up every article the New York Times ever wrote about Lenny Bruce. And Had you ever seen or heard Lenny Bruce? I knew that he was great because my parents just talked about him as if he was the best of everyone. Mm-hmm. And then there was that book by Albert Goldman uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, which I read as a really young kid, like eighth grade. And then I just wanted to understand it because my grandfather was a producer of jazz and blues and then later rock and roll. And so he was in that world because he was producing people like Dinah Washington and Dizzy Gillespie. So it felt like there was something connected to him and the spaces that he was in at that time. Did he also live in Syosset? He lived in Roslyn. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, in the late 40s, and it, I, I think I have this story correct, but it, it, it's pretty amazing. He, with his own money, would pay jazz musicians to record, and then he would print up the records and go to the record stores and sell them himself. Amazing. And then at some point, he created labels. Sitting In was one, and later in his life, the mainstream records. But... You know, early in his life, he recorded Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie doing Salt Peanuts. And Cannonball Adderley was somebody that he he worked with at the beginning of his career. And then he ran Emerson Records, which is where Dinah Washington recorded and tons of other people. So in my head, I thought, oh, this is what you got to do. You got to hustle. You got to make your own career due to the love of what you're doing. He loved jazz. He was just some Jewish kid from the Bronx obsessed with jazz. And then blues 
because I think jazz didn't sell as well. And at some point, just to keep earning enough, uh, it became recording people like Lightning Hopkins. Yeah. It's interesting to remember that it, in those days, the world was not the corporate world it is today. It's like that's what you're describing was not unusual for that time. That's kind of how pretty much everything was. The, the big corporate version was the exception, not mm -hmm. the standard. Yeah. And it was mom and pop everything yeah. back then. It was All the Wild was, West. Yeah. The Wild West, just my crazy grandfather running around. And then at some point he got portable recording equipment mm -hmm. and he went down south to record all the bluesmen on their front porches and do you have all the recordings i mean some of them still exist he recorded ray charles when ray charles was 18 years old wow. playing the guitar wow. and lightning hopkins people like that unbelievable and so it's a pretty remarkable career that led to him producing the first janis joplin album and all the early Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes so cool. records. So cool. And in our family, he was almost a myth. Yeah. I mean, it, he he was doing something that was very special. And when I was growing up, jazz was kind of dead mm -hmm. in the 70s. It was a bad period for jazz. So it also had this edginess of this is the best stuff and not enough people care, which made me want to pay attention to it because he he thought it was so important. Did your interest in comedy always outweigh your interest in music? Was comedy always number one for you? It was uh, because as a, as a little kid, I was fascinated by it. But they were friends with this woman named Toadie Fields, who was like a Joan Rivers type comedian who was hysterical and sang. And they talked about her all the time and we would go see her perform. And I think as a, as a little kid, I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. But this odd woman is doing like they love her so much and she's you know a, like a unique person and on some level i must have connected because they talked about her like she was so special and i think as a little kid i must have thought i want to be special mm. and also i always thought the world is so weird i, I need a way to process this so yeah. all the comedians who said this isn't fair and that isn't fair and look how ridiculous this is as a very little kid i thought oh i'm with those people do you remember the first time you saw comedy live? The first few times was at Westbury Music Fair. Yeah. I saw Don Rickles, yep. snuck down to the front row with my brother when we were like 10 mm -hmm. and 11, and he made fun of us. Saw Dangerfield at the height when he first hit in the early 80s. Saw uh, Dom DeLuise doing comedy and magic. Amazing. Always at Westbury Music Fair. And then when my parents got divorced, my mom had a job as a hostess at a comedy club working for Rick Messina, who's now uh, you know, one of the great managers who manages Tim Allen and uh, people like that. But at the time he was a dish, well, I mean, he was a, a bartender in my parents' restaurant, then they got divorced, he opened a comedy club and then he hires my mom to be the hostess. And I saw Paul Provenza, I think was maybe the first night. And there's a picture of it. Amazing. I, someone showed me a picture of photos from that summer at the East End Comedy Club in Southampton, and there's literally pictures of Paul performing, and I swear to God, I know I saw that show, because he took out this giant umbrella from outside and did an impression of E.T. making the like satellite dish, and I was like, oh my God, I literally was like just off camera from this angle. Uh, and a lot of people like Leno performed there that summer, and I've mentioned this before, but I always felt like that's another one of those moments where you know, my mom took this job, on some 
spiritual level it must have been because she knew I would like it because what could they have paid her to seat people at a comedy club in 1983 or 84? Nothing. Did you ever go to the Catskills as a kid? Never. Never. Did you go to the Catskills and see people? Yeah, we went to the Catskills and I would always see the comedians. There would always be a comedian and a singer Mm -hmm. and I only ever wanted to see the comedians. I never wanted to see the singers. And who, who did you see then? Um, Jackie Le- Vernon, maybe Lenny Schultz. Lenny Schultz. Yeah, I was a dishwasher at a comedy club. Lenny Schultz would come in, and he was like a crazy Jerry Lewis esque guy. And at the end of his act, he'd put a tarp down, he'd put on opera, he would lip sync the opera, and throw like spaghetti in his face. It would all end with him pouring like bottles of milk over his head. And then at this comedy club where I was now the dishwasher, he jumps in the sink, and then I had to clean him. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and the crowd, he would say to the crowd, just say, go fucking crazy, Lenny. Yeah. And then the crowd would go, go crazy. Yeah, yeah, Lenny. yeah. It was also uh, Mal Z. Lawrence. <laughs> Who was that? Another comedian of that yeah. of that generation, but he was a little more buttoned down. He was a little mm-hmm. more straight, uh, but solid, solid jokesmith. Well, those Long Island comedians who I saw, like John Mulroney, was really funny. He did a lot of crowd work and was he would host the open mic nights and he was so funny that it was impossible to not bomb after him because he hosted the night would murder between every act and then we all got up and we were all terrible and rosie o'donnell was first starting when i was a dishwasher she was just beginning her career and eddie murphy would come in occasionally when he was 21. he had just broken but he still would go to the clubs do you remember the first time you got up the first time I got up was that it May 1985. I was just finishing high school, always dreamed of doing it. I went up at the at this club called Chuckles in Mineola, and I had my two friends come, Ronnie and Kevin. And I, I said to the crowd, you know, I don't know how to deal with hecklers because I haven't done this before. So if you could heckle me, I uh, can learn how to do it. And so the crowd started heckling me, and then I pause and just go. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I got to work on this. That was all I had. And then the crowd wouldn't stop heckling me. Like I had gotten them going. So then the whole crowd's just like, fuck you. Yeah. And then you could hear on the tape, my friends almost getting into a fist fight with people yelling at me. Like, shut the fuck up. Shut up. <laughs> Let him talk. Amazing. But it was enough for me to go again. How often did you go? Tell me what was your... your uh the path there yeah i did it a few times over the summer and at the very end of that summer before college they asked me if i wanted to host the open mic so i got good enough where they said we'll give you 50 dollars to host i did so i made 50 dollars, and i was like this is the best thing ever but i'd gotten into usc cinema school and i went to la and i had to figure out a way to get on stage in la while going to school and i think maybe in a way that was you know, my version of what you did, I started booking stand-up shows at USC and then later at UC Santa Barbara. And then for Sammy Shore, who started the comedy store, opened up a little club and a fish restaurant in Marina Del Rey called Sammy's by the Shore. And I would book these things just so I could put myself on the bill. I see. And that's how I got decent stage time. And then then slowly you'd get, you know, you'd drive it, you know, to... Riverside or Rancho Cucamonga and play in a disco for 50 bucks. Hosting is a great gig because you get to, even though you don't get the long period of time, you have that experience of going up on stage, 
a bunch of times over the course of even one night. And those reps count in terms of just being comfortable in front of people, which seems a horrifyingly terrifying yeah. thing to do. You're constantly on stage. So you just get used to that. And you have very little time to be funny because no one wants you to talk for long between acts. Mm -hmm. So you have to slip jokes in really fast where yeah. you're trying to settle the crowd down, but you're also seeing, can I say anything in this 90 second space? It's also nice that the expectation's low on you. Yes. It's not, you're not there to kill. Exactly. Which is great. <laughs> it's great. Even now when I host shows at Largo, I'm always like, okay, I'm gonna bring you guys down right now. <laughs> I'm not gonna be that funny so you can rest for the next person. That's what my job is. I mean, I love to host. I'm about to go to, there's a ceremony for Adam Sandler. He's, he's being given the Mark Twain Awards. Amazing. And then they said, hey, the night before there's a dinner and people are gonna speak at this dinner. Would you like to host? And you know, you take that breath and you're like, yeah, I like hosting things. <laughs> like like it's, it's, it's fun to have that skill. I hosted the DJ Awards this year. Great. I'm used to, you know, being on stage at the improv for five hours, which is what I would do back then. Mm -hmm. I was the guy who was there from eight till 1.30 in the morning. Who were the people, do you remember the breakthrough people you saw come through just like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Like what broke the spell of, it's just another night at the improv, what yeah. were the like revolutionary moments for you? I mean, this is, you know, late eighties, early nineties, you know, seeing Sam Kennison with a crowd that didn't know what was coming. Yeah. Because it changed when people knew him. Yeah. But in the moments beforehand, and I never brought him up on stage, but I would see him at the comedy store. You know, a crowd that didn't know that that was the act. I remember there was a comic relief benefit and no one in the crowd knew who he was. And he starts his thing. It seemed like every woman in the room got up and walked out half the crowd stayed and then he just tore down the house with half the crowd and dice was playing then i mean i remember seeing kinnison then dice then jim carrey wow and jim carrey gets on stage and he's been bumped by dice and then he gets bumped by kinnison this is in the earliest days of in living color so jim hadn't broken big yet and he was so mad that he was bumped so many times and this had been happening a lot at the club that he said i'm not gonna get off stage Till you shut the lights in the club and he stayed on stage for like two and a half hours Amazing. improvised for two and a half hours yeah. every 15 minutes the comedian who was scheduled to go on would show up realize that jim was refusing to get off stage and they would yell at him and then he would just keep going and it was that night that i think he created fire marshal bill wow just riffing on stage great started doing the face and riffing on the fire inspector coming complaining about how dangerous the outlets were and so even in that moment, he invented something. But probably the most exciting thing about that era was Jim, because Jim had been an impressionist, and then he had taken some time off where he didn't do stand-up, and then he said, I don't want to do impressions anymore. I want to figure out who I am on stage. And even though the crowd loved the impressions, he would not do it, and he went on stage every night and improvised his entire act. And after a while, he started building the act. But for uh, you know, a few months, you were seeing one of the great live wire acts, and he would kill and then bomb and then kill. And, and you know, when you talk about like in your book, just opening up to the universe and just seeing what happens, he instinctually did that for a long time. And when you watched the movies that hit big, 
it was all in those stand-up sets. The moves, the physicality, some of the expressions. So that was remarkable to watch. And I would say to people, the funniest man who ever lived is coming into the improv every night. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and then we became friends and wound up working together. But great. that was great. And watching Adam Sandler, who was my roommate at the time, figure How'd out who he Sandler? was. The guy saw him at the comic strip one night. He was like a scrappy kid. Close in age, you and him? Yeah, same age. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's from New Hampshire, but it felt like a Brooklyn kid. And, you know, almost like a Bowery boy. Yeah. Almost like a Beastie Boy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he felt like, like the Beastie Boy who went into comedy at that time. And he used to go on stage, take, he was wearing sweats. He would pull them up as high as he could so that like his bulge stuck out. And he would go, my impression of Mikhail Baryshnikov. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like your funniest friend in the world. Yeah. And we, we became friends. And then at some point we, we lived together and he would go on at the improv and, and he was treated very well. Bud really believed in him. So he gave him great great stage time and we would watch him develop his act and i always remember robin williams came in one night and robin williams would come in occasionally and he would kill so hard that it really would almost end the show mm. like nowadays i feel like anyone like the good comics can follow each other it's rare you feel like someone blew the room apart yeah and the only thing to do as an audience was to go home and that's what robin williams would do Wow. It was like everyone else wasn't even in the same business. Yeah. Like you were embarrassed to talk after him. Like, are we supposed to do that and think that fast and do that many voices? It, it, you really got embarrassed if you were just a conversational comedian. And would he, would he go up and do an, like his act or would he just? Uh, a combo of improvising, improvise. playing with the crowd, some stuff he had written. And one night Sandler had to follow him on a Saturday night. Robin Williams just demolishes the room. And Sandler, who no one knows, yeah. goes on after him. And it was the first time I ever saw him take all the energy in the room and keep it going. Wow. And I really thought that, that when I watched it that night, I'm like, oh, and now it's begun. Wow. That's beautiful. Amazing. I'm just picturing it. Oh, it, yeah, it, it, it really was. It was, you know, the funny thing is that he, he just always believed in himself. He really had a sense of what was possible. Do you remember when the whole, um, I guess you lived through it, when it moved from the straighter comedy that came before to the 70s, early 80s, like the when, when stand-up really broke out, mm -hmm. Steve Martin, I guess even George Carlin, even though he predated it, was still yeah. part of that revolution, yeah. that breakthrough of now comedy's modern. It's not guys in yeah. suits telling one-liners. Well, also Second City TV and Monty yeah. Python hit at that time. Richard Pryor's best stuff hit yeah. at that time. And then the comedians like Eddie Murphy when Raw came out and Delirious, those were milestones that changed everything. So you think that's like when the Beatles came along and all the music before the Beatles felt like old and now there's this <laughs> new, seriously, it's like a, a new wave of comedy hit. And um, I, I don't know how the comedians, like the, um, whatever the, the previous wave of the biggest comedians, mm -hmm. you know, the Bob Hopes of the world, seemed obsolete, no? 
certainly some of them were, were just in a different space. And then there were people like Alan King who were so funny. Yeah. And Dangerfield. They were they were people that yeah. were still great. And and every, occasionally you would see someone like I remember seeing Henny Youngman at this Toronto Comedy Festival. And it's all cutting edge new people. Mike Myers went on before SNL and and Carlin was at that festival. But then Henny Youngman tore the house down. And there was something fun about it. But definitely when people like Richard Jenny started hitting and uh, you know, the beginning of I don't you know, Belzer, who, yeah. who who we just lost you know, who inspired everybody. Yeah. I mean, if you look at modern comedy, everyone's still talking like Richard Belzer. Yeah. That it, it was completely different. And I then think I think it the, happened again with the, this era of comedians. I think of Belzer and Richard Lewis for some reason in the same breath. I don't know if they came up at the same time, yeah. but it felt like stylistically they were cut from the same cloth. Yeah, there was Robert Klein. Yeah. And then I think it turned into Richard Lewis and, and Belzer and... It was all very exciting. I think it's really exciting now to see what people are doing. People yeah. have podcasts. They're very close with their audiences. There's an intimate relationship. I mean, when I was a kid, I would interview comedians. When I was about 16, I would go interview comedians from my high school radio station just because I wanted to get information from them. I wanted to be able to ask them questions. It was really just for me. Mm -hmm. But I think that's because podcasts didn't exist. Yeah. Like in my own head, I was trying to create the space where I would hear that kind of conversation, even if it was just with me, mm -hmm. to you know, to sit with Leno for an hour and a half and go, how do you do it? And where did you come from? But now the audience is having a completely different relationship because they might listen to these people every week or every day. And then they, when they see them in person, it's like their friend. And in those days, you could only see comedy really on the Tonight Show. Like you're very, it was hard to see comedy. Yeah. It was hard to see comedy. On television, for sure, it was hard. Yeah, it started with Evening of the Improv. Suddenly mm -hmm. that appeared. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, there's a whole world of this? Because I remember there was only like two or three clubs in the country, and then maybe there was 50 for a while. Then it became like 150, and the whole thing blew up. I, I totally remember that when I was in high school and I wanted to be a comedian, one of the reasons why I had confidence was I thought there was only 100 comedians in the country. Yeah. And I really thought, oh, I could be one of those 100. Yeah. I mean, now. Yeah, there's not enough. You, they need you. <laughs> exactly. I just thought, you know, I've seen these people. And I was from Long Island. A lot of the comedians like Paul Reiser and Seinfeld, they were from Long Island. And I thought, I'm kind of like them. And so it didn't, it also was something that no one was interested in. In my high school, no one wanted to be a comedian. No one even cared about comedy. So it wasn't like there was improv groups in my high school or college. No one cared at all. So I thought, oh, I can slice off this little space for myself and then I moved to LA and suddenly I met all the other comedians and they were all just like me. It was like every person like me moved to the same city and then that was so fun. Like, oh, like finding friends who all had the same record collection. So cool. Did you ever meet Andy Kaufman? I never met Andy Kaufman, but I worked for Bob Zamuda who worked with Andy and wow. wrote a lot of that material with Andy because my, my first job was working for Comic Relief. So I was 19 years old or eight, I was 18. And I called them up and I said, I'll work for you for free. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing like the live aid of comedy. And then I got to know Zamuda, who told me all the stories yeah. about Kaufman. And, and was he forthcoming? Yeah. Great. Love to talk about it. Great. And even that m made it real to me because I, to me, Andy Kaufman, you know, was like the Beatles. Yeah. So to meet someone that knew Andy Kaufman, it was part of that creativity. I think all those moments make you go, oh, so this is a job. Like, they're just people. 
and they're creative. And I guess I could maybe do that. Like when you're home, it feels so magical. Yes. But when you see it, uh, when you talk to people, you're like, no, it's just a guy in a room. I, that's what I feel about Get Back. I feel like people mm-hmm. watch Get Back and go, it's just four dudes in a room trying to come up with something. Yeah. And I feel like it inspires people because it's the room that the Beatles are in is pretty much the same as the room that the Seinfeld, Seinfeld writers were in or the Simpsons writers. It's just a bunch of people in a room trying to collectively support each other, be open to ideas. And any band's experience is the same as the Beatles. It's just what did you come up with in that room? And with Andy, as popular as he got, he always seemed far outside of the mainstream. He never seemed commercial. Mm-hmm. You know, he he, he yeah. was popular. Yeah. But he was never regular in any way. He was always Andy, completely different than everybody else, always odd, always confrontational. Yeah. And that's what made it so great. Yeah, it was always troubling on some level. Yeah. I mean, I... I helped Jim Carrey when he was working on Man on the Moon. So he was doing research and we went back east and we we had dinner with Andy's brother Michael and and his father. We visited his grave and his high school and his family home. And I realized, oh, he went to high school in mid to late 60s. It's very influenced by the ideas that were happening at that time, living theater, uh, psychedelics. Because mm-hmm. when I watched him, I never wrestling. thought, oh, a guy who took a lot of acid <laughs> thought of this stuff. Because I don't think he looked at it like he even was a comedian. He looked at it like he it, like it was art or it was some sort of performance art. And he wasn't interested in what the rest of us are interested in. It's like a certain rhythm of getting a certain amount of laughs over the course of an hour. He was trying to provoke people into all sorts of different emotions. And I just think most people don't work that way at all. Yeah. That's why I love when you see something like when stand-up goes outside of itself a little bit and there's drama. Like some people make fun of that, like, oh, why are comedians trying to be serious? But when somebody switches it up and talks about something real and drops the comedy for a moment and then finds a way to get back to it, mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting and should be encouraged it doesn't have you don't have to you know you don't have to be dangerfield and go wall to wall the whole yeah. time or or, it, or there's also the uh, tony clifton approach of just yeah, like exactly. ending up being funny based on how not funny it is just the yeah. belligerence of it ends up being funny well i mean the one that makes me laugh is that he was on the merv griffin show and it's not even andy it's bob zamuda <laughs> like like he didn't even do it like every once in a while bob would do it yeah and bob did it i mean bob was hilarious i mean to me bob did it funnier yeah than andy yeah. and then the joke was that merv griffin kept talking to him like where's andy thinking he's talking to andy like aren't i funny saying where's andy and then it's like a double joke like and he's not here he's not lying when he says he's not Incredible. andy incredible and bob always just talked about wanting it's it's like pranking the audience and pranking the world yeah and so he was a fun person to be around because that's what made him laugh the most was did, how you trick them did you ever see when uh, andy was on uh, the dinah shore show yeah when <laughs> so getting her to sing uh i can do anything yeah. better than you can <laughs> it's so funny and he's so drunk i think that he used to get really drunk before he did it like not a little drunk like he would but, get but andy didn't drink but tony clifton drank <laughs> exactly in real life both yeah it's unbelievable unbelievable 
What do you think it is about Long Island that uh, fosters so much uh, creativity? Yeah, isn't that weird? Were you from Long Island? Or? Yeah, I'm from Long Beach. From Long Beach. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, yeah, there's, there's so many people from there. And I guess it's not quite the city. I mean, later there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of weird crime. I mean, in some ways, Long Island can be like Florida. There's a lot of weird stuff happening on Long Island. And it, I don't know, maybe it's middle class enough that people feel like they can succeed in something like this, that they had enough support to take a risk to do something creative. Yeah, and you could take an hour-long train ride into the big city, so you could yeah. you could get there by public transportation <laughs> yeah. I pretty the, easily. I'd take the train to Caroline's, go see Gilbert Gottfried when I was 16. Yeah. They, 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 was, was Gilbert always Gilbert from the beginning? Like, yeah. it, was that character? I think so. I mean, I think maybe it got wilder and wilder. Yeah. But I used, I mean, I, I used to go see him and I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. He just he just made me laugh. He's so, so much. So funny. Yeah, just the just the greatest. I mean there and there are people that you like, but you don't really laugh that much. You laugh a little bit, but you just like what they're saying or you like their style. And then there are people that actually make you piss your pants laughing. Like people who can crack you. Yeah. And Gilbert was one of the few people. Kevin Meany was like that. Where you were in just like, hmm, nice joke. They actually would make you fall out of your chair. I'm so curious about Gilbert. How did he come to be? And when I say be, I don't know. You know, I don't know where the line is yeah. of where the human ends and the guy who's on stage. Yeah. Is that all him? Or did he become that? Was it do you have any idea? Well there's a great documentary called Gilbert that this friend of mine Neil Berkeley made. And you just see that he's this really sweet guy and he's married and has two kids and he's like the nicest dad and it's uh it's his sense of humor but it's a character he's just like a, like a beautiful guy a really nice guy but finds that hilarious <laughs> right he just it's as simple as that this is what makes him laugh is to do that and also like the the idea that the character in in, in so many ways is a throwback to a different time of comedy mm -hmm. you know he wasn't a contemporary comedian he yeah. was a com he was like an yeah. old time comedian <laughs> except he was young yeah it was just odd yeah and it and yeah just so weird and postmodern and mocking the form and willing to go too far and paying a price for going too far yeah where he you know he he really stood up to the world with the idea that I should be allowed to say anything that makes people laugh. And if I offend you, then you know, watch somebody else. Did you ever get to meet uh, Jerry Lewis? I have a funny Jerry Lewis story. I'm working for the Comic Relief. It's the first Comic Relief. And Jerry Lewis is uh, walking towards an area where a bunch of photographers are gonna take his picture. And as he walks there, a few other photographers are kind of running to get in position to take a picture of Jerry and one guy trips and falls so hard like on his camera it's like a real wipeout and then he jumps up and Jerry Lewis looks at him and he goes you're supposed to fall wait for the laugh then get up amazing <laughs> so I go online last year and I just go I wonder if there's a photo of that moment and I go on Getty Images and I just search every photo from comic relief and i find the moment 
where he literally has like a finger pointing. And I'm like, that's the moment. That's him making the joke. Unbelievable. <laughs> I remember seeing, I can't remember where it was and I've not been able to find it since, but uh, I came across a Jerry Lewis interview a long time ago, like on channel 13 back in pre pre cable days. And it was a serious Jerry Lewis interview, which was the funniest <laughs> yeah, ones. Yeah. The filmmaker. Yeah. Dead serious, <laughs> arrogant, serious Jerry Lewis. And it was long and really uh, heavy. And um, <laughs> A lot I don't of darkness know, I, there. There's an amazing book about Jerry Lewis called King of Comedy. And I think the guy who wrote his name is Sean Levy. Sean Levy. And what happened is he started doing a book with Jerry's permission. Mm-hmm. And then he started asking some questions about the telethon and criticism of certain aspects of the telethon, but not thinking he was going to get into a fight with Jerry Lewis, just as part of asking him about things in his life. Jerry Lewis gets furious, says he doesn't want to be a part of the book in a very, I guess, cruel way. And then he just says, I'm going to write the book anyway, and writes the most hysterical, dark book of what Jerry Lewis is actually like, which is just a nightmare. And it is one of the most fun reads. Jerry's unbelievable. I think Serious Jerry is the funniest of all the Jerry's. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, it's like someone who is so out of tune. And I feel like there are people like that. Donald Trump is like that. Cosby's like that, where something's not there. Something in their humanity is clogged or non-existent or they have blind spots and their ego has just exploded and there's still a mix of good and bad. I mean, Jerry Lewis obviously helped a lot of people with the telethon, but also... And he made the funniest movie, as you know, in our yes. childhood. Yes. He probably made us laugh more than anybody. Yeah, and we're, we all copied him. Yeah. And, and it's such a mix of person. And he's such an extreme version of that because you just think, does he not know how ridiculous he sounds, how arrogant and crazy? And there is a way to talk about the craft that isn't you know, like that where you're just so condescending and so arrogant yeah but why is it why is arrogance and and being condescending so funny it is so funny i think because for the same reason why gary shanley thought larry sanders was funny just the human foible of trying to present yourself as important and having your shit together and worth listening to that there's something so ridiculous about that need to present yourself as together. That's, I think, why people laugh at Trump so much. Because separate from the politics, you know, he's the guy that brags about taking the test that shows how strong and stable he is mentally, but says, you know, the, you know, the chair and they ask him a thing. You know, like, and in his head, you think he's really smart and doesn't have mental problems, but everything he just did is that he does have some sort of mental problem what was it chair table woman yeah, yeah. what's the list <laughs> yeah you camera uh, <laughs> and it's just so wild it's so crazy and it's scary because he's in a position of power <laughs> but i remember shanling told me he and it's in the documentary that he did the he did like regis and kathy lee with trump so regis isn't there trump's filling in <laughs> And this is a long time before he ran for president, eight years, 10 years. 
and he said he wrote it in his journal like that looking in his eyes was was like looking in a black hole like there was something <laughs> missing there and he said that he made a joke because trump owned or owns miss universe pageant and gary said something like i mean you say miss universe but like do we really know how about the contestants from jupiter like are we sure that we beat mars or some some kind of silly joke like that but he said that trump looked at him and said no these are the these are the best women in in the universe and he didn't understand the joke in any way but gary said that it scared him that there was something about it that he found terrifying wow like just looking in his eyes that's wild. Tell me about the, um, because you got to work in, in comedy clubs, what's the culture of the comedy club like? Like what's the, uh, how does a comedy club work? Mm -hmm. What's the psychology of it? Yeah. What's it, what's it like for the people who are not the, not the public who comes, but for everyone else, mm -hmm. tell me about the psychology of the comedy club. Well, it, there are different spaces. In, in the beginning, you're going to an open mic night. Mm -hmm which is a beautiful thing because it's just, anyone can go on stage, just put your name in and whatever, 10, 20 people can do four minutes, five minutes. I used to always drive to open mic nights that no one went to because maybe they'd give you seven or eight minutes if you drove to Montclair or yeah. something. And most people are terrible and will never, and some people are like crazy, like bad, but also crazy. Mm -hmm. And then there's always like a few people and you go, they're gonna get good. Wow. They're gonna get good. They, they're, they, they have five minutes and maybe they're telling 15 jokes and three of them are good, like really good. And you meet people and you're kind of bad, but you meet someone and you think, they're kind of where I'm at and you become friends. I mean, I started and it was, Andy Kindler was doing stand-up at all the open mics when I was doing it. And Doug Benson was at those open mics and then you slowly rise together. It's a beautiful thing. And then suddenly someone gives you money to host something or you become a middle, like, cause it's usually an opener, a middle and a headliner. Mm -hmm. And you, you drive to Bob Zaney's comedy shop at a pizza restaurant somewhere. And then you audition for Mitzi or you audition for Bud. So there's this really wonderful ladder you're climbing and every show you get a little better or you learn something that gets you better. And so there's a real sense of growth all the time. Even when most of your shows are terrible, you do feel like, I think I'm getting better. Yeah. And I had a lot of patience because people said to me, it takes like seven years to find yourself. So in my head, I set the clock at seven years. So I, I didn't feel that bad when I was awful because I thought, well, I'm only a year and a half in. And then at some point you get accepted at clubs and there's the road clubs. And that's kind of funny because like, you're not that great, but you're working with a headliner who has to hang out with you all week. Like mm. you're stuck in Dallas and Kevin Rooney or Rich Scheidner or somebody who murders every night has to go to the mall with you every day and <laughs> kill the day. And those become your mentors. These people you meet on the road, Larry Miller, you know, the people that, you know, taught me, you know, how to write a joke. Or I remember Larry Miller said to me, you know, you got to sit at a desk every day and write jokes. Your job isn't like the 20 minutes at night. You gotta put in a few hours, sit in a chair and write. You're a writer, you have to write your act. And he had like an hour and a half of material and I thought, yeah, he's better than almost everybody. I guess I have to like put in my time. And because most comedians, they're just like, you know, getting lunch and going to the movies during the day. They're yeah. not putting in massive hours of sitting at a typewriter or whatever we did back then. 
And then there's the world of the improv where like the best person from every city moves to LA. And, and so then that lineup is just all headliners, all murderers. And then you're in, in that world where you hope that the people are there, like whatever, George Wallace and Seinfeld, that someone will tell you that you're okay and you deserve to be there. You know, if, if Seinfeld, like, you know, I, I remember I brought on Seinfeld once and I slipped in a couple of jokes and afterwards he just went, that was really funny. That was the first thing he said on stage. Wow. It kept me going for a year. Yeah. Because he meant it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I got a couple of jokes that Seinfeld thinks are worthy. And now I think in the clubs, you know, you go to places like the Comedy Cellar and there's three rooms and there's tons of comics hanging out. And it's a fascinating fraternity of people, like a lot of great people, some kind of deranged people. I mean, you really get every type of person in that world together. Most of the time, everyone laughs and gets along, even people with very different opinions. There's some people that can't tolerate being around each other, but it is the most interesting people to hang out with. I love hanging out with musicians as well, but comedians, if you're in the mood for it, because sometimes it, you know, it's too much energy, it's yeah. too many ideas, or too much pain, or mm. too much something, or too much greatness. You just you, you don't have it in you to, to go into it. But when you're in the mood for it, the fact that you could go to the comedy store and sit in the parking lot and chat with somebody that you respect, like Mark Maron. Yeah. You know, it's the reason why I got in the business. Sometimes I think I did stand up just so I could hang out, hang with, out the with the comedians. Yeah. I need the credibility for the hangout. Mm -hmm. But I always think that, like, I made movies just so I could go on The Tonight Show as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting how not all the comedians are necessarily funny when they're not on stage. Yeah, some aren't funny at all. Some are really shy. Some are weird and they just like leave the club as soon as they can. Other people love hanging out. I mean, you're really seeing every type of person mm -hmm. in those clubs. Did you go to um, midnight movies as a kid? I remember seeing Rocky Hour Picture Show and things like that, but I have to say I loved movies. I went every weekend. I would go and watch two or three movies on the weekend. And I never thought I would make movies. I thought I'd be a comedian. And I'm sure as a little kid, I thought like, oh, I'd love to be Steve Martin. I'd love to be Bill Murray. My goal was not to be a director. So when I watched movies as a kid, I never paid attention to what I should have paid attention to. Cinematography and story structure and, and the history of cinema. I just watched tons of movies as a fan. Never anything foreign, ever. And not even obsessed with anything great i liked some good movies but wasn't seeking that out you just wanted to laugh at the people that you liked just want to go see fast times wanted to go see stripes wanted to go see the new stallone movie yeah and then later when i started working in movies i was like oh man i wish i paid attention <laughs> i really i really can, understand it's the never too late more. it's never too late to make up for the <laughs> exactly I, I try to make up for it also because you got to spend so much time when you were young with so many different comedians interviewing them was there a thread where you feel like there's something about all of these people that's the same or are they all radically different? At some point I realized that of the people I liked, at some point they became themselves in their work. So Gary, you know, he, he did, you know, it's an amazing special, which was like, I don't know if it, if it was like the 25th anniversary of the Gary Shandling show. Like it was a fake 
talk show anniversary with all the clips of the 25 years of Gary Shandling's talk show, which didn't exist. Incredible. And then he did it. It's Gary Shandling's show, which really broke open the genre. And I think, uh, you know, Conan said to me, it made me realize what was possible. Yeah. Because no one had really cracked open sitcoms in, in that way, in such a surreal way. And that that inspired the people like who did The Simpsons. Like so many writers saw that Gary was like, oh, we can break all the all the rules. But then at some point he he really wanted to be honest. And I think he was frustrated at It's Gary Shandling Show because he couldn't go as deep as he wanted within that format. Mm -hmm. And that's why he created the, the Larry Sanders Show so that he could dig as deep as you can dig. And I think that for a lot of the great comedians, whether it's just in their act or something else, there's a moment where you feel like they got to the truth. It's like Gerard Carmichael's last special. Yeah. Where you go, oh, there it is. Yeah. And there's been a lot of people, you know, who, who do that. Pat Oswalt had a few specials like that. And, and obviously Richard Pryor, where they got there. Yeah. The Gerard one's incredible. And I don't even know if it's comedy anymore, but it doesn't matter. It's so good. Like, it's so real. Yeah. Well, Hannah Gadsby's special. I mean, people always say, like, is that even a comedy special? But when you watch it, there's like maybe like seven minutes where she pulls the turn and gets very serious. The rest of it, she's murdering. Mm. It's hysterical. The next special is pretty is, is really great too. And and you see that in people's writing and in their movies where they just, you know, find what they're they're really about. Were you involved with the Sanders show from the beginning? I was friends with Gary. I was doing the Ben Stiller show, the mm -hmm. sketch show, and was friends with Gary. So I was around it just as a friend, you know, like looking at auditions. He remember showing me the, the Jeffrey Tambor audition. Yeah. He was trying to figure out that part and talking about meeting with Rip Torn. Incredible. Because he was scared. What a cast, man. What a cast. Because Rip Torn was so wild that you know, he called Albert Brooks and he's like, can you work with Rip Torn? And Albert's like, you know, it can be tough sometimes, but it's worth it. Do it. So I saw him develop it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I wasn't a part of the development of it. And then I worked for it the second season onward. Was it always scripted to the last letter or was there improvisation in that show as well? What Gary did is uh, they would table read the show Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, they would rehearse it on its feet and Thursday and Friday they would shoot it. And they'd shoot it like a movie, 17 pages a day. A normal movie shoots three to four pages a day. So it was so much work and moved so fast. And in the two days of rehearsal, Gary would play and let the actors play and take notes. And then they had to lock it in for the, for the shoot. Although Gary was always, if Gary thought of something, he was gonna do it. And he would never be mad at anybody. And I, I think that my process came from watching him and understanding that was it shot in front of an audience or no just the talk show parts. just the talk show parts and so in a way we're like making a talk show at the same time we're trying to do the scripted show mm -hmm. and so and that was weird because suddenly gary would say i need monologue jokes and suddenly the whole staff <laughs> had to turn into like monologue writers uh amazing and uh and it, yeah, it was it was a, an amazing experience and gary you know he, he lately i've been thinking a lot about the absence of gary yeah. Like I'm in the middle of the script I'm writing right now. And I'm like, this is the exact script I need to talk to Gary about. And I have to really tune into his voice and think, I think I could predict what he would say. If I get really still 
I can have that conversation with Gary, but he was such an important mentor and also just a, a cheerleader of, I see what you're doing. Just keep going. I like it. You know, like he was the one who introduced us. Yeah. Just called me one day and said, you should know Rick. Yeah. And he had like a vision. You talk about yeah. like things lining up. He's just said, I think you and Rick are going to do something together. Yeah, he day. always talked about you. I can't remember how I met him. Maybe through rock or yeah, maybe. But that, I loved hanging out with him. And he was so funny and interesting. That's why when, you know, we first met and you came to my office and you played me all this music by the Aved Brothers. And so I put some music in This Is 40 the closing song and but also i felt like gary was encouraging something and i just had like a feeling like gary said this is an important relationship and you know i i, I took it very seriously and then well, you called me one day and you said the avets are about to start recording maybe we, you should shoot something and i called my friend michael bonfiglio who followed a lot of the the shooting and then playing their music to each other down south at the beginning of the process. And you know, no one was paying for it. I was paying for it because I didn't know what it would be. But kind of because of Gary, I thought, follow through with this. And so for years we taped, I was just writing checks. There seemed to be no story because they get along so well. Yes. And Michael and I would say, can you make a documentary with no story? And with people who get along well. Yeah. People and, who love each other. And then we were like, yeah, well, that's maybe that's the structure. That's what it is. Is the support of each other and how it turns into creativity and, and music. And, of course, moments happened that afforded some drama to it. But it really felt like Gary saying, go. And then, you know, when you think about it, the next thing I did was a documentary about Gary after he died. So you almost could look at it like Gary was training me yeah. to be able to process his life. So beautiful. So beautiful. I remember um, there's a scene. It's, it's interesting seeing for me to see that movie because I'm in it in parts because it some of it happens here at Shangri-La. And they record this song, or they perform this song mm -hmm. that we're recording, and it's unbelievable. It's one of the yeah. greatest moments I've ever had in the studio, seeing someone do something live that's just so remarkable. Yeah. It's no hard feelings, right? Yeah. It's just stunning. It's stunning. And it wasn't the first time they played it, and the time before it wasn't stunning. It's like something just happened. It was a magic moment, and miraculously it was caught on camera, which is, again, a gift. And then after, and I remember the experience of it, when it's happening, I'm feeling like, oh, I hope they can make it to the end of the song. It's scary. It's so yeah. good that it's scary because <laughs> if they don't make it to the end of the song, we can never recreate yeah. it. It's, it's like, like the wonder in Goodfellas. And, right? and you're like, I hope that no one screws up this yes, shot. Yes, it's happening. It's happening. And then when it ended, because it was so good and the energy was so good, my first instinct was to say, great, what do you want to do next? Yeah, let's Which keep it was, going. yeah, like my first instinct was not let's celebrate. My instinct was we're being, we, we have a visitation here. This is a magic moment. Should we play something else? 
And I remember they said, um, oh, we just need a break. We're going to step out of the studio. And they stepped outside. And then, and, th and then I just thought, okay, they want to get some fresh air. But then in the film, mm -hmm. we get to see them outside. And it seemed like there was some, um, I, I don't know. I have to watch it again now. Yeah. Because I feel like that what I what I got when I saw it in the theater was like, Oh wow, they were bummed that I that I didn't like celebrate it more. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what it was. Or what do you just observe and do nothing. Yeah. But what's fascinating about it is they step outside. Yeah. And it's a song, I guess, that Seth had been writing for a decade, maybe. Wow, I didn't know that. Um and you know, a very important song about about life and ending your life with no hard feelings and hope I learned the lessons of life. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm sure they wrote it together. But they get outside and Scott is bothered by the idea of the fact that you open up your heart and then suddenly it turns into commerce. Wow. In some way. Wow. Like people don't understand what it takes to get to this. Yes. And... I talked to Scott about it because he said, as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, they're going to use that moment. And I feel bad <laughs> because it's like my brother's triumph. Yeah. And I kind of make it about these other issues. Wow. And I, I should have I not started talking about that. But I love that moment. Yeah. Because no one talks about how vulnerable you are to share your deepest feelings with the world and your risking rejection you're risking humiliation you're trying to touch people but you're also trying to make a living and you're hoping it connects with people so that you can sell some records and reach people enough that they want to see your shows and so the whole idea of what is uh, mentally taxing to all artists this balance of going there being truthful but i still have to make a living and i have to dig it out and then deal with what i dug out is all in that scene it's just a great moment i can remember when we spoke right after the movie was done and you were saying both in terms of reaction people really loved it and you had never had an experience like this one before i remember you mm -hmm. saying about it and i remember i said because everyone we know is crazy like these are actual nice people they're not yeah. comedians yeah they're not broken mm -hmm. <laughs> they're they're healthy happy beautiful people yes and we don't know people like that <laughs> exactly well you said to me life is better when you're around them yes and that was one of the reasons why even though it took years we just kept going it's also why i thought <laughs> i know this sounds funny that if i lost an enormous amount of money like i couldn't sell it yeah to pay for what i put out that it was fine that this is really about the experience and there's something that i need to learn by being a part of this process i mean michael bonfiglio took on the brunt of the work being such an incredible filmmaker that he could be in these moments bond with them and not interrupt what they were doing he wasn't an obstacle no. and that's really why the movie's good it's so good but i really thought oh there's a there's a there's a lesson here and, and and all that is it's like it's it's the connection to you and gary like oh there's something to learn here and that's what i always loved about gary because even though he was in so much pain some of the time yeah and and was neurotic and was buddhist but had a hard time 
embracing all of it. Let's talk about Gary's hard time, because I think it's interesting, and I, I honestly don't know very much about it, but mm -hmm. it seemed like something happened that changed him. Mm -hmm. Was it that business thing with the show? You know, it's hard to know. It might just be things bubbling back up. So, you know, we started making the documentary, and I had this thought that maybe Gary's brother dying when Gary was 10 and his brother was 13 of cystic fibrosis might be the beginning of some trauma that affected how he lived his life. But Gary never talked about it with me. And I didn't know if I was correct, but the more I, interviews I did, the more I talked to people, it just felt like something happened that made him see the world suspiciously. Make, it made him sensitive. It made him want to protect his ability to be by himself and that he was struggling with something. And then I met some people that he, he did talk about that with. But then one day I'm you know going through his journals, he has 30 years of journals, and I open it up to a page and he's talking about some courage that some friends of his had due to a, a, a traumatic event. And you could tell it inspired him to be brave with his pain. And then the next page it turns into a letter to his brother. Wow. And I don't know if a therapist said to do that as an exercise or Gary just did it. And it's like eight pages. Wow. And so this is someone that talked to almost nobody about this. Mm -hmm. And every single thing that I thought was happening was in the letter. And he's thanking him for affecting him for his entire life. And he says, you know, I'll see you on the other side. And, and he talks about his pain and how it affected him throughout his life. And it was just incredible that it was there. Amazing. Everything that, that he wanted to express to his brother, that this was maybe the most important relationship in his life. And when I looked at all the home videos of him, he was always so happy as a little kid with his brother. In every home movie, he's so happy. And so when his brother died, it changed him because someone told me that they didn't even tell Gary that he died. So he didn't get a chance to say goodbye when his brother was in the hospital. And then he only found out that he died by just overhearing it. They just sent him to you know a relative's house. And then in the house, it was you know another era. It's the early 60s or 1960. And he you know, was part of a family system that said, we're never going to talk about this again. And so they never talked about it. He, he didn't process it in any Do you way. think that was the basis of all the resentment with his mom? Because he, he talked a lot about the yeah. mom. He never yeah. talked about the brother, but he talked about the mom a lot. Yeah, I mean, we found this piece of footage. It really is remarkable that it exists. It's an interview with his parents when Gary was first starting as a stand-up comedian for some, you know, some news program. And they're talking about how proud they are of him. And the dad starts saying something like, you know, it's amazing what he's done. He's been through so much, you know, when his brother died. And his mom just says, like, we're not going to talk about that right now. Wow. And so you actually could see what it was like for Gary. Wow. And he was bottled up. And so I think Gary became obsessed with uh, truth, loyalty, presence, because he felt mistreated and 
misled in some ways. And he was also fascinated by the, you know, the false mask. You know, how do we present ourselves to the world versus how we're really feeling? Yeah, which is why he made such great art. It's like that's what he made that the art form. And some of it might be like the mom pretending everything's fine when it's not fine. Just people being full of it yeah. to just get through the day and uh, avoiding their pain. That's why Hank Kingsley's so funny. You know, because he's like trying to act friendly to everyone, but he's just a mess and a nightmare. And, you know, as soon as he walks away and Gary's, you know, characters going on dates and on the date, he makes him watch his TV show. And, and Gary just thought, you know, that's not what our connections in life are supposed to be. I, I always said that it was like he was eviscerating the part of himself that was an egomaniac. Mm -hmm. like he, he created his worst self and mocked it and he always used to say the difference difference between me and larry sanders is larry sanders couldn't write the larry sanders show yeah he didn't have enough awareness yeah uh, but it's his buddy love it is it's his tony clifton yeah <laughs> <laughs> amazing i can't help but think about gary i just i really miss him you spent all the, I'm, you probably spent in the last years of his life way more time with him than I did. We, I got we to spend a long because he spent time in Malibu, and I, I got to see him on a pretty regular yeah. basis. And he was struggling. I mean, I think that he had, you know, physical problems. But did something? I feel like something happened. Like, did you see a change mm -hmm. between the Gary who was making the TV show and the Gary after the TV show? Well, you know, in the middle of a TV show, he ended his engagement with Linda. And that had to be resolved legally because he, you know, he fired her uh, after they broke up. Yeah. She was one of the stars of the show. And that's, you know, the, the, you know, the definition of what you're not allowed to do yeah. to somebody. And then he was in a lawsuit with his manager, Brad Gray, and he felt taken advantage of. And that, I think that was also Gary's worst fear as you know, brother figures not living up to what his hopes were for those relationships. And then, you know, during the last season of the Larry Sanders show, he was in the middle of this $100 million lawsuit because he felt that there were financial improprieties. And he really wanted the show to be great because he used to say, Brad never did anything on the show. And now that he's not a part of the show, I wanted to be the best season ever so people realize he did nothing. Yes. So there was some revenge and there was a lot of that dark energy mm. around the show. And then the show was about that his agent on the show, Bob Odenkirk, uh, that he represented Jon Stewart also and was pushing Larry off his own show for his other client. So it became about the way you can kind of sometimes get screwed by representation. And then he was really burnt out from doing the show and he did win the lawsuit it was re it was resolved uh, before it went to trial like literally the day before he, he got a settlement he found out later that brad gray was bugging his phone with anthony pelicano uh and anthony pelicano went to jail and gary testified he went to jail for a very wow. long time and gary used to say like i think someone's bugging my phone and we were all like all right gary yeah someone's bugging your phone <laughs> <laughs> but they were. They were bugging Kevin Nealon's phone because he was talking to Gary a lot. 
And so I think that made him paranoid. I think it really did damage the, the, that, you know, that relationship getting that dark. And, you know, part of Brad's dealing with the, the lawsuit was to try to vilify him in the press yes. and say that he was on drugs and to say that he was irresponsible with the show. And I was around the show. I mean, I'm not saying Gary wasn't doing something because who, who knows, but certainly, you know, the show ran as fine as any other show I've worked on. Of course. There's always moments where people run out of gas and you go, I can't do it today. Or yeah. there was a moment where Gary in the middle of a show just jumped on a plane and like went on vacation because he just ran out of gas. But we finished the show and figured out a way around it. But I think another thing that hurt him was he made this movie with Mike Nichols and he loved Mike Nichols. He really looked up to him. And I think Mike Nichols lost faith in Gary and just kind of phoned it in. Mm. And he would leave every day at 3, 30, 4 o'clock. Mm. And Gary wanted to grind and improv. And, and I think that Mike Nichols didn't believe in the movie and didn't believe in Gary. And instead of like doubling, doubling his efforts, he just tried to get through it to get to his next project, which he was more inspired by. And I think that betrayal yeah. probably was as hurtful to Gary as the Brad Gray wow. situation. And, you know, I, I, I was doing the documentary and I, and they, you know, they, I would just find all the stuff and I, I put a cassette on, like they were just cassettes and I would just listen, like, what are these? Are they stand-up sets? And it was him talking to his therapist for an hour about Mike Nichols just saying that how he felt mistreated and how he's just trying to do as good a job as he can, even though he doesn't have his true support and partnership. And it was really heartbreaking to, to hear that. And then I think he had some health problems. He had some thyroid problems and he had pancreatitis and, and who knows what he was doing if he was taking pills or, you know, lost control of that during certain periods. He certainly was foggy and not, himself during a lot of time at the end of his his life but it sounds like it was self-medicating for the for the pain yeah real pain yeah emotional, emotional pain. pain i mean it, it's it's hard to know with gary because he always made jokes about taking yeah. pills so you yeah. know larry sanders like who's got something but no one ever had anything yeah. <laughs> you know he used to chew excedrins all day long <laughs> he literally had a giant bottle of like five thousand excedrins and he would chew them which may have led to his pancreatitis <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's no way really to know the full inside story of it, you know, but he was still so nice, read every script I ever sent him, came to every table read, any screening. I mean, the saddest thing was when he died, I went through all the emails from him and every single email where I said, Gary, can you help me with this? It was just like, yeah, where, what, what time? For like 15 years. Incredible. Incredible. Good friend. I mean, uh, like unbelievable because I thought you know, when he died, why is this impacting me in such a, you know, powerful way? And I realized, yeah, he, he gave me my first important job writing for the Grammys. And then he taught me to write at the Larry Sanders show. Then he asked me to direct at the Larry Sanders show yeah. when I didn't even ask him to direct yeah. and then helped me with every movie I ever did. And as a friend was, you know, I remember my mom died and he showed up with like a stack of Buddhist books that he thought would be helpful and so it almost like cracked me when he died. I mean, I made that documentary over a couple of years, but it was a form of grieving. Like It's a beautiful tribute. So beautiful that it exists. Yeah, I'm so glad that there's a way to organize what he was and what he did and, and that 
uh, you know, because I thought, you know, Gary's a very private person. Mm -hmm. I thought, would Gary hate this? Like, would this be the, his worst nightmare? Or would he say, you know, I'm, I don't know if he considered himself Buddhist or interested in Buddhism. If there's anything anyone can learn from my life, I want them to learn from it. So I, I and, and I knew that he wanted to do something about his journals and he had even shot some footage with someone considering a show about stuff in his journals. So I thought there was some light permission there, but that that's what he would want. Like, I just want to help people that, 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 that ultimately, if you believe in Buddhism, everything is meaningless. All, all, uh, Dharma is dreams and all that matters is love and connection and that we're all connected. So why wouldn't Gary want that offering for other people, which is ultimately just about how can we be better to each other? And, and you saw how he was to you. So you, he yeah. demonstrated it in always there when you needed him and was, was there to mentor and help you for your whole career. And the saddest part was Bob Saget was a big part of the documentary. And they got into a fight because during the Brad Gray lawsuit, you know, Bob made a joke about Gary. And I'm sure like he didn't realize the impact of it, but Gary tried to warn everyone who was represented by Brad and say, he's not honest. He's not what you think he is. And in some interview about the lawsuit, and I, I don't know if Bob was pressured to talk to a reporter to help Brad out, you know, he said, uh, I'm gonna sue Brad too, cause I need a new Porsche. And at that moment, Gary was really, really upset. and and. They didn't talk for a very, very long time. And even at the end, it was just beginning to, to warm up. But in the documentary of Bob Saget, very bravely and, and beautifully did interviews where he was just crying and saying that life is too short to have these types of fights. And we were like brothers and we were so close and you have to forgive people. And he kept saying, you know, we need to love each other. We don't have that much time. And then Bob died. And Brad died yeah. that year. And so, you know, looking back on it, I, w I was always surprised at how willing Bob was to own up to a mistake and to say to the world through this documentary, don't let these things tear you apart. You, you know, we have to love each other. And I, it was, I think, one of the greatest things that, that Bob did. It, it seemed shocking at the time doing those interviews because he didn't call me afterwards and, and say, Judd, I cried so hard. Can you not use some of that? I mean, he was very willing to share that sentiment. Yes. I got to film with Bob two or three weeks before he passed. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible and emotional and beautiful. And it's like, you know, like an Oscar performance. Like it's unbelievable yeah. where, he, where he went. He was a really deep character and could really get in touch with his feelings in a way that I don't think necessarily came out in his comedy, but he was a deep cat. Well, he just loved to make people laugh hard. Yeah. I mean, that's what he did. And it, and it doesn't have to come out in your comedy. If you're, you have a different type Absolutely. of comedy and you're just a joy machine. But I think it's the same sensitivity, like the sensitivity that allows him to get so emotional allows him to see what's so funny. Yes. Absolutely. And, and he was so kind to so many people that when he died, people were so devastated because I think he was one of those people that every time you saw him, he made you so happy and you might not 
fully appreciate that. And then when he's gone, you realize, oh, this guy is one of the great joyful parts of my life. Tell me about writing jokes. What's the process? It's so interesting because it, it's such a weird process. Like comedy is tricky because <laughs> there's no way to know if you're doing it right ever. At some point, there's a reaction from a reader or the audience, but it's not like a song and you hear it and you go, oh, that's a beautiful song. Or you say you're home alone and you write a song on the guitar and you make a demo and you're like, I think that's pretty good. When you do that with writing, it might be good. You might get excited for a moment, but there is always a chance that you're completely wrong because every joke is an experiment. Every comedy story is an experiment. And... You really have to trust yourself. It's funny because I've been taking this like these like flow research classes online. I'm fascinated by flow because comedy is all about just letting something come. And can you clear your head enough? It's everything that's in your book, you know. Can you just clear your head and trust that something will come in that space? And it's so hard to get into. It's such a practice. And I'm so impressed with people like Jeff Tweedy, who writes a song every day. He wrote a beautiful book called How to Write One Song. And John Cleese has a great book about creativity. But it's always about can you be bored? Are you comfortable enough in your own skin to sit alone in quiet? Get your mind to be quiet and then find a way to begin to prod it in some creative way. And with jokes, it's weird because it's silly too. I mean, I'm sitting home and I'm just trying to think like, how do I show that Steve Carell is a virgin and he's horny, but he's lonely and he's sitting in this house. Oh, maybe he pees with a boner. (laughs) (laughs) I did my head. I like, I'm cheering. Like I just, you know, wrote, you know, crime and punishment. (laughs) Like, I'm, I've never seen the pee with a boner joke. And then other times it's something much more intense and thoughtful and, and dramatic. And you, you might, in the moment, get a buzz. Like, I think that might be great. And then you have to hold on to that because the process is so long. You might have that script for years. Wow. And are you going to get bored of that script and start just changing stuff just to change it? Mm-hmm. Do you still know it's good when that moment of inspiration is so long ago? And... It's, it's, a weird, it's a weird type of creativity because it's storytelling and then you're trying to make people laugh. And why do people laugh? You know, some people can really talk about it. I remember seeing Alan Alda and John Cleese do a Q&A and they literally talked about the psychology of why we laugh and why we're surprised. If and it bends, it's funny. If it, bends, if it, <laughs> if it breaks, it's not funny. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like I made this movie, The Bubble, and it's, it's on Netflix and it's all about people trying to make a dinosaur action movie in a pandemic bubble during the pandemic. And I kept thinking that there's that expression, uh, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And, you know, people always say like, too soon. I'm like, this movie is like not even too soon. It's now. <laughs> I mean, we are not even, I don't even, I haven't gotten to too soon yet. Yeah. And so that's, that's the thing that you're always up against is you don't even know what the real rules are. It's all instinct. It's just, you know, am I doing this in a unique way? I, tr- I think a lot about movies, like, is the movement of the story different than things I've seen? Like, I like when people can't predict where the story's going. 
that it's, wow, I didn't think the movie would go to that place in the last half an hour. I'm always trying to figure that out. But lately, I've tried to just do what you're writing about in your book, which is a great comfort to me to, to read, you know, which is trust the universe. Because I'm not really religious, although I'm open. That's what I talk to the Avid brothers about lately, because I, I always have this joke, but I'm not kidding. I'm like, I'm ready for Jesus. Yeah. Like, tell me what to read. Yes. I'm, I mean, I'm ready for everything. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and so uh, they tell me like certain writers Great. about religion that I, I like to read, because I'd like to be more open. But the one place where I do believe in something is at the moment of creativity, because yes. it always feels like it's from somewhere else. And something just pops in your head. I mean, do you think your, your, your head is chat GPT? It's just some weird supercomputer? Or did something happen? And I saw it with Shanling. He'd sit down and we'd, he'd, he'd have to fix a scene and I'd sit with him and suddenly he would just, I could see him just come alive. And for five minutes, he's just scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. And those are the scenes that are the best scenes in the whole show. And that's what I'm trying to commit to because I'm less disciplined than you. I won't get in the cold plunge every day. <laughs> I won't eat right most days. I, I won't meditate when I should. I, I, I do a very patchwork version of that. But the days that I get up and I don't get on my phone the second I wake up and I have a, just a cup of coffee and I sit in silence, usually something good happens. Yeah. Do you think what's funny today is the same as what was funny in the past? Or is it a constantly moving target? Yeah, it's always a moving target, I, I think. I mean, that's what everyone is dealing with now because what makes us happy and what makes us laugh is different. And I always think it's like some people like Metallica and some people like Keith Urban, but we're expecting all of the Keith Urban fans to love Metallica and the Metallica fans to love Keith Urban. I think that's really what's happening in the country is due to social media and the way that everything is connected. The people who don't want to be exposed to certain things are exposed to certain things. So because everything is fed to us, you might go, oh, I don't like that joke. But you didn't like buy it. In the old days, yeah, you listen to Richard Pryor because you bought it. But now you see things for free. But you still get to choose. You get to choose what you want to watch and what you don't want to watch. Absolutely. Or you just swipe past it. Yeah. But I think that along with all this discussion of what hurts people's feelings and what we're sensitive about, it changes what we think is allowable because I think a lot of humor of the past was like mocking our differences and being kind of vicious at times and being like funny about, oh, you talk like this and I talk like that and, you know, your culture is like this and like that. And yes, some of it was cruel and some of it probably went way too far. And some of it's hilarious. Some of it is just the way we give ourselves a hard time. I, I have a therapist and he said to me, and I don't even know if this is true, but he said, one of the theories of how comedy began was you would have a group of people, you have a tribe and say it's like 20 people and they all hunt together. And then slowly one person is clearly a better hunter and is bringing back more food than everyone else, but they can't let him become or her become too powerful. So they give him shit. And that's how the joking started, like to bring you down to the level of the group, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, it makes some kind of sense that, you know, we like to take the piss out of each other. And in this era, everyone's like, well, that's mean. And for some people, maybe it is mean and you don't want to, you don't want people to do it to you. It's like some people want to go see Don Rickles, 
And some people... Yeah, you did. You <laughs> snuck down to the first row to get insulted. Exactly. I understand. <laughs> I've been working on a documentary with Bob Newhart about his friendship with Don Rickles. Incredible. And he said everyone would walk up to Don and say, do me, do yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I remember he once insulted me at a restaurant and I was so proud. <laughs> but now some people, not everyone, but a, a small percentage of people, maybe they wouldn't like those types of jokes. And so it, it's it's... It's weird and it's a little, it's a bit of a bummer too, because it's just a big buffet of styles. It seems also that the thing that makes comedy work is that it goes too far. Like yeah. that's that's why it's funny is that it's too far. I, I got to yeah. work with Dice mm -hmm. and yeah. with Dice, the idea was the reason everyone's laughing isn't because yes, what he said, you're laughing because it's so wrong that it's funny. That's where the joke is. And now people debate, well, it doesn't matter what his intentions are. That's just a, a terrible thing to say. And But that's the joke. Yeah, and that's the question too, which is like, if I love that kind of a joke, and I'll do jokes like usually just alone with the family to shock them. Mm -hmm. Like, if you love that, should you not be allowed to have that as a consumer? Or... You know, is it like, well, for the people who want, you know, that type of experience, because some people think that life is so dark and so weird that the darkest possible humor makes them feel a lot better. Absolutely. It's always been the case. Humor doesn't make you feel worse. Yeah. It's to deal with the pain of life. Yeah. It's the escape valve. It's the, it's the pressure release valve. Yeah. And at the same time, there's, I think every comedian has to decide what feels ethical to them. You know, yeah. What do I want to what say? Their what their line is, of yeah, course. What, what is my message and how do I want people to feel and who is my audience? So, you know, I'm always on both sides of that issue mm -hmm. because I, I think that that's part of the craft is I, I want people to like it. I remember James Brooks was always like, you know, if you show them the movie and they, they don't love it, you failed. <laughs> you know, and so like it's supposed to work for most people, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is a weird time. The philosophy in the book talks about, yes, you want people to like it, but you don't change a frame of it to make somebody like it. That's, yeah. that's the way I see it. Mm -hmm. Because then it's, not, it's no longer, then it's just pandering. Mm -hmm. Then it's not authentic to you. Yes. And the whole idea of us doing this is that we, we each have our own authentic voice that's different than everyone else's. And if we just water ours down to fit what a lot of people like, it defeats the purpose of us doing it. Absolutely. And I feel like the things that I've done that have worked were moments where I fully let it go. Yes. And then that was, you know, hard for me, you know, when we did Knocked Up to go, I don't know if, are people interested in my point of view, how I see the world, what I find funny, what my experiences have been to trust that if I go all the way, that that's when the most people will connect with it. But, it, you know, it's hard. There's almost an arrogance in, I deserve to be heard. I always have a critical voice that's like- No, but if they don't like it, they don't like it, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. It's, it's different than, um, I'm saying as a creator, you can't think past, to me, this is the funniest thing. Yeah. Like this, this thing I made is the funniest thing. And any thinking you do past that only undermines your work. Yes. The hardest part, hardest part of the comedy is at some point you're, well, with a movie you're showing someone and then you find out 
if it communicated. You know, does it get a laugh? Does it not get a laugh? And then there are jokes that you'll leave in a movie where you go, no one laughed. I don't care. Yeah. I find that funny. And yeah. sometimes years later, that's the one they're quoting. Absolutely. For whatever reason. Absolutely. So that's the weird thing is a movie is shown to audiences. You test it yeah. and you make adjustments based on the rhythm of this relationship with the crowd as they watch it and people you know we record the audience and we adjust timings and mm -hmm. we we ask them like what do you not yeah, understand people are still laughing at a joke yeah. and the next joke hits and you miss the joke that's yes. not good yeah you have to like time it all but also talk to them about if they get it but at the same time there are moments i've had this in a bunch of movies where you think i know the audience doesn't like this but i want them to suffer through this yeah i like this is a painful scene yes you know when we did funny people it's about adam being his character being sick and not being able to learn any lessons from being sick. Yes. And there were scenes where people, you know, got uncomfortable because they love Adam so much that seeing him suffer is not fun. And at the time you wonder, oh, did I put people through too much? And then, you know, a decade passes and you realize, oh, people really love that movie. It's a great movie. But at the time you're like, oh, this is breaking some rules of just, yeah, what is like the joy machine of certain comedies? Like, no, there's sections of this that aren't even about that. They're about you seeing what it's like to be selfish and how much it hurts his life to fully live in his desire for success. You know, he's sick. He has no friends. He has to hire an assistant to have a friend. A friend. Yeah. And so you're standing behind things in a way that, you know, I, I was always inspired to do because I would read this J John Cassavetes interview. And he said, I don't, care if you like the movie or dislike the movie i only care if you're still thinking about it in like five ten years yes and that was my mantra during that movie he yes. also said i don't even care if you like the whole movie but if there's just a few moments that really connect mm -hmm. with you then that's enough mm -hmm. i can remember us going for a walk on the beach after that movie mm -hmm. and me complaining because i loved the movie and i felt like a disservice was done to you by whoever released it because they promoted it as the new Adam Sandler comedy from Judd yeah. Aptow. And it's yeah. like, that's not what this is. And if you go to the movie expecting that, yeah. you're not gonna like it. <laughs> exactly. It was it was like false advertising. Because yeah. it was a serious movie. It was it was funny at times, but I I would it'd be a stretch to call it a comedy. That's true. I, I definitely tried to allow myself to let parts of the movie not be funny yeah. and to lean into the dramatic side but it's about really funny people so they make jokes while dealing with problems yeah but that's the strength of the movie that's why the movie's so special is that it it's not just another comedy and we get to see adam really go deep yeah at same in punch trunk love as well we got to see him really like it was another side. It's like he's he's not just this guy who can make you laugh. I, I think those those movies and those creative moments happen also because you're going through something. I remember Jim Carrey always said that whenever he made a movie, it, it, like it would enter his life because it was something he needed to explore. And someone said, uh, you know, you write the movie to figure out why you're writing the movie, and that was one of those experiences. My mom had died right before we shot she was sick for a long time with cancer and again it's like a form of grieving what 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 am i supposed to learn from her life how can i apply it to to my life and these lessons because my mom was sick and every time she really was sure she was going to die she seemed much happier 
like all her neuroses, and she was a very neurotic person, just disappeared. All the things she complained about, she stopped complaining about them. Mm. And then she would take some experiment, experimental medicine, and they, they would say, I think you're going to be fine. And then she would kind of become a nightmare again and get very neurotic. Fascinating, no? And it, would, it happened multiple times over a few years, and so that's what I wanted to write about, just how hard for all people it is to learn the lessons that the universe is trying to yeah. to Would teach you say you. all the stories are biographical? On some level, even the ones that I think aren't at all. So if I think about The King of Staten Island, which is very autobiographical for Pete, even though it's fictional, mm -hmm. I always think, yeah, but it's also about relationships and, and step-parents. And can you let someone new in your life and create that loving parental connection. And, you know, so I had a lot of entry points, you know, for that. Did you ever see anyone, any comedians who were really great and really funny stop being funny? Uh, like just lose their thing? Yeah, I want to go both ways. Like, did you ever see someone who's like not great for a long time and all of a sudden they're great and the other way? Oh, that's a good question. Like who lost it? I mean, you know, with George Carlin, people debated his final specials because they went really dark. Yeah. And, and, in, and in some of them, maybe some of the pieces were too dark. So in the documentary we made about him, you know, Stephen Colbert said, yeah, no, I think he went too far. I think that wow. at some point it loses hope. But as I looked at it, I just thought they're just warning shots. Just, I'm going to go so dark. So at the end of the end of it, you would think, you know, maybe we should be nicer to each other. Maybe this world, when it is dark, when it when we're terrible to each other, should be attacked. And maybe from hearing about that, you might want to be kinder. Because at the end of his act, it would always say, uh, you know, be uh, take care of yourself, take care of other people, some version of that, you know. And that I, that's what I think his whole theme was. So he would say all these dark things, but at the end of the of, of his shows, he would say, you know, be kind to other people, be kind to yourself, or whatever the words he used were. But for some people, he had lost it. Yeah. That it was just too much. I mean, I remember he had a he had a bit about wanting a suicide channel on TV, you know, and and then he would do his impression of all the executives wanting more beheadings and and you know, it's not that far from the truth, really, you know. Yeah. So he would take it five steps past where you think he's gonna go. But I think his whole theory was you have to step over the line with the audience and make them glad they joined you for the ride. Yes. That was a great movie. That was a really the, the George Carlin documentary. I learned so much. I loved him my whole life, and I got to learn so much about him. I knew nothing about him other than, you know, his albums yeah. that I listened to religiously as a child and then the, the uh, HBO specials. So much interesting stuff. What an interesting character. Yeah, and, and me neither. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know that much about him. That's why I was afraid to make it, because I yeah. wasn't his friend. Yeah. I'd only met him in passing. I interviewed him once as a kid. But he was very similar to Gary at the end of the day. That's the funny thing, is that he his act was completely different than than Gary's. Mm -hmm. But ultimately he had an emotional journey of learning what his his values were. And it really was that we're all connected. I mean, he had this theory about like the great elect electron 
And he basically believed in the idea that we're all connected. And, and for a guy who didn't really believe in God, had a spiritual idea of the universe. And so it ultimately wasn't as, as dark as, uh, as it seems on the surface. It's also interesting the way he wrote. It seems like he just wrote Sing at Home Alone, all of it. And it was never like, there was no aspect of improvisation that fueled his his comedy. Like so many comedians have some jokes and they get up on stage, they tell those jokes and kind of see where it goes, see where the story wants to go. Doesn't seem like that was the case with George. No, he was just a writer. And I remember seeing him once at Igby's and and he just had all his note cards. And he's, he was just, it was all memorization. Can I perform this? the way I wrote it and it was very musical. Some of the bits have so many words and they're yeah. so complicated. Yes. And it was, can I memorize this enough to hit the rhythm that's in my head of it? But we were very lucky because his daughter Kelly was just so open about him and didn't want it to be bullshit. Yeah. And just encouraged going all the way into his, his, you know, his good qualities and his bad qualities. And you can't really make those documentaries unless someone in the family or the person will allow you to tell the truth. It also seemed like in the middle there, there was a period, maybe maybe a drug period, where he kind of got a little lost mm -hmm. and then had this third act that was just incredible, this best yeah. ever. Yes. Well, he, I mean, at one point he said that he saw Sam Kinison and said, I don't want to spend the rest of my career breathing this guy's dust. And, I, and so it made him redouble his efforts he loved what kinnison was doing and just thought oh yeah i gotta work harder like if i want to be in this position i have to continue to be groundbreaking which is pretty remarkable because i think most artists you can't say they're doing their their best work in their final third rare and carlin really according to my opinion me too took it to another best level and that's that's inspiring to me as an artist that you can keep growing you can keep getting better so, you know, whenever there's an album, like, you know, whatever, Time Out of Mind or something, and Bob Dylan just cracks another one, yeah. it makes me think, yeah, you, at any moment, can be Mel Brooks and you make the musical the producers, you know, in your 70s or however old he was at that time. Yeah, and amazing that not only did he do his best material, but it was like he became a modern comedian again. I think of him from childhood as the the hippie 70s comedian archetype yeah and the best of the best and then to reinvent himself in the i guess late 80s early 90s would you say yeah, yeah. as kind of the cutting edge of comedy mm -hmm. it's incredible yeah who are the musicians that you think have done that or are doing that the Dylan example is a great one. Time Out of Mind album is ridiculous. Uh, also, Modern Times is a beautiful album. I love that one. Neil Young can hit it out of the park on any given day. Um, we were lucky to see Johnny Cash's ending last few albums really connect with people in an interesting way. feel like Willie Nelson. Sometimes it's just can't believe it. So beautiful. Yeah. Few, but I would say few and far between. Why do you think that is? People just lose uh, their chi a little bit or their I don't need? think it's chi. I think my best guess is early in your career, your whole life is about your art. And then through success, 
your life gets built up outside of your art, family, other obligations, more comfortable life, adult responsibilities. Whereas when you're young, you don't have any of those. Yeah. All there is is this dream. And I think over time, unless you put your art before everything else, which most people don't as mm -hmm. we grow up, it falls back to a place. And also, once you've had success, it's easy to fall back on, oh, this worked last time. I could do something like that. Mm -hmm. the, the, the hunger for staying new, finding the new way to do it, challenging yourself may not be as strong as it was when we were young. And the willingness to risk worldwide humiliation. Absolutely. And that's the thing with Neil Young, that people used to joke about some of the albums that some people thought didn't work. Yeah. And he didn't give a shit at all. Mm -mm. And that's almost a, you know, a, a way someone's brain works where he's just creative, jump on when you want. Yeah. And that is very difficult, especially in movies because the movies are expensive. <laughs> and when you misfire, like you take a beating. And so to not bring the energy of the beating into your next project yeah. takes so much strength. But it's not gonna help. Like bringing the beating is not gonna make the next yeah. one better. It's just the opposite. I remember after Funny People, you know, I loved the movie. It wasn't a giant box office hit. The reviews were decent. But I was very, very happy with it. And I also thought, this is the one moment in my life where I'm, I'll be allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. An expensive movie with Adam, with the budget to to show what a rich man's life looks like, to have James Taylor and Eminem in it and, and just the scope of it. But it felt a little weird when it was over. I wasn't sure what to make of the, the response. And I was talking to David Milch, who's the great writer who did Deadwood and NYPD Blue, who's also a mentor. And, and he just said, I, I see what you're doing. It moved me in many places, really made me laugh in many places. And that's rare for me. Keep going in that direction. And that's why I did This Is 40. Just yeah. those words, keep going in that direction. And it was just great to have someone who's like, don't retreat. Yeah. And, you know, those people are hard to find. Yes. You know, you need that. Yes. Even on my new project, I wrote the outline and I just sent it to the people that I respect. Yes. To just say, am I crazy? And so when they get enthusiastic, it's just enough gas for the tank to. And now to when it. you look back on funny people, how do you feel about it? I haven't watched it in a while, but I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I made it. It was one of the great experiences working with Adam and Janusz Kaminski and Leslie and Seth. And I think I captured a moment in our lives and, and, and in our behavior and Norm McDonald's in it. You know, like there's like a lot of little details that are very special. And I'm glad I, I'm glad it says what I wanted it to say, which which was as simple as at the end of the movie, Adam writes some jokes for the protege. Yeah. That it, it's just about giving and kindness and all that. All, it, it's funny because it goes back to Gary. At the end of the movie, you know, Adam has been terrible and it's the scene where he's apologizing to Seth because it's like his first real friend. And he says, you know, I, I wrote you some jokes the other night. And he takes out some crumpled paper and he starts reading the jokes to Seth. And they're all filthy. And one of the jokes is about his grandparents are so old that his grandfather 
thought he was fucking his grandmother, but it's really just fucking his own balls. <laughs> right? Just a dirty, ridiculous joke. Right? And I said to Gary, can you end a movie like this with that kind of joke? And Gary goes, you have to. Yeah. Because that's what he would say. Yeah. And that was so helpful so <laughs> to have that voice absolutely you know, in in the world so cool did you ever get to meet woody allen i've never met woody allen i'm trying to think of the because i love talking to the legends yeah you know i'm very close with norman lear who's 100 i was recently at his house and had just a hangout session with mel dick van dyke and norman lear wow so Mel's 96, Dick Van Dyke's 97, Norman Lear is 100. And then I got to interview Mel Brooks for The Atlantic the other night. So for like two hours, just grinding him like this. Just, Great. Just grinding Mel, but Great. more for wisdom. Just I want to know, yeah. you know what have you learned in this life? But you know, it always is the same in the best way, in, in the simplest way. Because I'm trying to figure out how to get Mel Brooks to not do his normal hilarious stories. Yeah. I want to have the real conversation with him. And I said, when you talk to your kids and your grandkids, what's what's the wisdom you try to give them? And he just said, you know, be nice to yourself. Be nice to other people. You don't know what they're going through. And that is all it is. Yeah. Right? Like, it's just, we're all connected. Let's all be good to each other. And, but the fact that I could sit with him and talk to him Incredible. at all, he couldn't be funnier at yeah. 96. I mean, in two hours, not even reaching for a name, just remembers everything. If you think about comedians spend their lives making things to entertain and bring joy to other people, that's what it is. Even the, even the filthiest joke, even yeah. the meanest joke, the intention of it is make a bunch of people have a better day. That's yeah. it. That's, that's why I like spending time with those types of people especially the the ones who've just done it for so long and are still riotously funny even in conversation dick van dyke so funny Amazing. norman lear is so funny do you ever meet tom smothers i've never met the smothers brothers i'd love to me I too mean, man man have they made me yeah because that laugh. was another like smothers brothers laughing that was another phase of comedy where it was like different than everything mm -hmm. that came before it yeah new for the kids you know new more aware or if you think like blazing saddles yeah. nothing was like that nothing was like that and I was, I was trying to get into a conversation with him about the morality of his work the ethics of what he's trying to say because you know he's using a closed fist to make some hilarious points but in really funny brutal ways and he always tells that story about talking to the studio exec john Kelly about the movie like can you really do this and john Kelly says well, if you're gonna walk up to the bell, you better ring it. And that there's satirical ideas in all of that about his humanity. And he told me, and I hadn't heard him talk about this before, that in World War II, one of his jobs, he worked for the Army Corps of Engineers, was to defuse bombs. So if you can imagine Mel Brooks, he's like every toilet, like you'd go to a house where the Germans had been living, like in a community in France, they would put a bomb in the toilet. So if somebody flushed, they would blow them up. So every, they'd have to go to these places and, you know, and, or put bayonets in the dirt and feel for something metal. 
And I said, did you think you were going to die? And he goes, every day. Wow. But you think, what does that do to someone? So when they come home from World War II, that they want to make blazing saddles. Yeah. And they, they, they want to talk about, you know, the ways we mistreat each other through riotous, rough jokes. And it must inform everything that experience, like J.D. Salinger in, in World War II. How do you feel about late night TV now? I mean, I'm always a fan of it. So I, I'm always amazed that people can take the worst days in America and find ways to be funny or to console the country. I, it's a burden that I'm, I, I find really remarkable that all these people can handle. You know, Jimmy Kimmel is so funny, but he, he just hits the right tone when talking about a lot of the issues coming up in the country and, and he's tough and when terrible things happen, he's right there. And I feel like all the talk show hosts have had to learn this way to talk to the country about war and school shootings and the pandemic. And I just can't imagine what it would take to just wake up every day, go to the office, read the paper. Some days it's the worst stuff ever. And you go, I have to find a way to be funny about it or connect with my audience about it. Mm -hmm. And they do it for decades. Yeah, It just feels like a, a real burden and a, you know, a gift to give to people that they can do it. I feel bad that they have to. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of them are so funny. They probably wish that they weren't pulled into politics mm -hmm. so much because they have so much more that they could offer. Yeah. I and, wonder about that. I wonder if there's no rule yeah. that the monologue has to be about politics or that it has to even be about current yeah. events, even though that's the way most people do it. It could be a five minute stand up set yeah. that just kills. And that'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I think that they do all do that sometimes. And some are more political than others. But I, I'm so impressed that they do it. And I find that sometimes like, I don't want to watch it because I'm exhausted. Mm. And I have to go through periods uh, of not watching the news and, and tuning out completely and just protecting my psyche. Yeah. And this is you know a, a conversation we always have in my house, which is, your job is to make people happy and to uplift. And if you get pulled too deep into the muck and get too obsessed with all this stuff, whatever energy you put into it is not going into your creativity. Yeah. But I also have a real, and I think it's like a Jewish thing too, like we're supposed to scream when bad things are happening. We're mm -hmm. supposed to warn people. We're supposed to say stop. And so I almost have a genetic inclination to want to know what's going on probably to my detriment, but also it feels like, well, if we all decided not to comment, then what's going to happen? Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough line. What's the last feature film you saw that you thought was really funny? That was really funny? Yeah. I mean, Triangle of Sadness made me laugh a lot. I thought that that movie was really smart and funny. Everything Everywhere All at Once has a lot of great comedy so i think yeah. anything that's super original that is a giant success says to the industry don't forget to be original yeah let people take chances you might have a mega financial success if you give people that freedom because i think you know if you think of it as a pie chart of how much of the money is spent on those risks versus what they see as safe bets it's less mm -hmm. and we want to encourage them to think originality makes them a lot of money yeah, for sure. I think originality is key. It's also key in terms of it just being 
interesting. It's hard to, uh, I don't know, I find it hard to see the same things. <laughs> Do you, if you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. The, and then the you, cookie cutter. That's why I like documentaries. Most. Yeah, me too. Because they're original. Oh, every time. And 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 you're working in documentary now. Yeah. Are you enjoying those projects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, really fun. Yeah. Fun. I'm learning a lot in the process and trying experiments that when they work are really interesting. And it's a, a tightrope walk to. Yeah. Well, it's a complete, yeah, just the, to work in a completely different medium, I find it informs everything. Like, I feel like my movies get better as a result of working in documentary that there's lessons in the storytelling of docs that have uh, informed just how I look at my writing. Is writing for stand-up different than writing for movies? Or should I say writing jokes for stand-up yeah. different than writing jokes for movies? I really like stand-up, might even like it the best, but I think that the stand-up writing is harder than the movie writing. Because so many people are doing stand-up and so many people are brilliant. Mm. And so many people are really unique in how they see the world. Like if I am with Chris Rock and we're just talking about life at dinner, he just has a different point of view on almost every subject than I do, but also a point of view that I don't even know if I could have thought of. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing stand-up, you really are in the shadow of so much greatness and you do have to you know, just think, well, what's my point of view? What's happening in my life? And a lot of times with stand-up, I just think, my life isn't that interesting. And I don't know if my worldview is that interesting. But I really enjoy it. And I have a fun time doing it. And people seem to like it. But I definitely look at other people and think that they're from Mars yeah. and are a gift to the Earth. Yeah. I always thought that when I was working with, with Jim Carrey and yeah. Maria Bamford, who I love so much, that you know, they're cut from different cloth. I mean, and, Maria Bamford's like Radiohead. Yeah, and when you're writing for a movie, there's always the story, like you have this story that's grounding it, whereas that doesn't exist in stand-up. Yeah, and I, and you know, when you do stand-up, you have to be true to who you are. Yeah. And I used to write for a lot of comedians, and I could sit and write with Jim Carrey and imagine his point of view and do okay and, and, and write him decent stuff, never as good as him. Uh, and I did that for a lot of people. I wrote for Roseanne and one of her specials and people like that. But in a movie, I can just create a different person yeah, and give them a crazy way of looking at the world. But it would be wrong for me to do that on stage unless I was doing a character. Yeah. Was Roseanne incredibly funny? So funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I always remember one day she says, I want to do a, I want to do a joke about how it's better to suck dick than kiss ass because when you suck dick it's like an agreement like I'll suck your dick you'll give me this when you kiss ass you're just doing it with the hope that you might get something <laughs> That's really funny. I mean she would come down with these yellow legal pads filled with jokes and ideas and we'd sit at her like breakfast duck and then I would try to sort through it and expand on Do you know things. how she ended up in comedy? She was from Utah. She said she grew up around a lot of Holocaust survivors. And one thing she told me that's in my book, Sick in the Head, when I interviewed her, was that she thinks being around so many people talking about the Holocaust at the earliest possible age really was destructive. 
for her. Yeah. Like it, it wired her in a, in a way that, yeah. that messed her up because it was a lot of uh, Jewish people in a non-Jewish you know, part of uh, Utah. And she, yeah, she started doing almost like feminist poetry nights, things like that. And, and she was a waitress and doing, you know, blue collar jobs and found herself, you know, in the, I guess at that point she was in Colorado and found this domestic goddess point of view. And then it really took off. She visited LA, she told me, and the first time she visited, auditioned for The Tonight Show and got The Tonight Show. And then I remember her telling me that she got a job opening up for Julio Iglesias for six months. And she's on the road. I mean, I guess for part of it, she's like, her family's coming with her and for part of it, she's away from her family. And she never realized that that was part of the job, like leaving. Hmm. And that she, that she got really bummed, like, oh, my dreams are coming true miss, and I'm just gone. Her family, yeah, she's yeah. lonely. Yeah. Wow. She, but she was great to me. And it, it was, a, her and Tom gave me a lot of work early in my career. I worked on like three specials with Tom and one with Roseanne. And they were so funny. I mean, everything that they did would be so dramatic. It was right at the height of like the Star Smackle Banner and, and all of that stuff. I remember there was a moment where Tom was mad because Roseanne got a call from Jesse Jackson who wanted to have lunch with her. And Tom's like, doesn't want her to have lunch with Jesse Jackson. And, and Roseanne's like, he doesn't want me to have lunch with Jesse Jackson. He's jealous. Tom's like, I don't know what's going to happen. He, he could fall in love with you. I fell in love with you. Why wouldn't Jesse Jackson fall in love with you? Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. It was a really crazy but kind of amazing moment, the Tom Roseanne moment. There was a, a time where we're shooting in my grandmother's house, a Tom Arnold special, and Roseanne's doing a cameo. And they're uh, in a room, and Roseanne's getting her makeup done. And Roseanne starts talking about plastic surgery. And she says, Tom, would you ever want me to get plastic surgery? And Tom's like, no. I mean, I, I don't need you to do anything like that. I mean, I obviously, you know, uh, love you the way you are. So why would I, you want to change it? <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and takes it as an insult. <laughs> and, and suddenly they're like to everyone in the room, get out. And you just hear like smashing, like people being thrown into walls. And then a moment later, the door opens and Roseanne says to me and the director, Pete Siegel, get in here. Did you think, Tom was just making a joke, or do you think he meant it? And Pete Siegel, the director, says, I, th I thought he was just making a joke. And she's like, you just want to get the fucking shot. And then, get out. And then suddenly, boom, boom, boom. There's more fighting in the room. And suddenly the door opens, and Roseanne and Tom, and suddenly like, Tom has like three scratch marks across his forehead, like... Bruce Lee came of, came of death, right? And and then Tom runs out, runs outside, Roseanne following him. He takes the keys to her car and throws them deep in these bushes so she can't leave, right? And now everyone's looking for the keys for an hour. Then you go back into the room, and then suddenly they're like, I think Tom said maybe they had sex in the room. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Jeez. By the way, it's my grandmother's house. And, uh, and then suddenly they just come out and they're like, all right, let's shoot. 
that is wild. <laughs> I love that you've like, seen such interesting things over the course of your life. Oh yeah, I mean, everyone is so interesting, don't yeah, you think? Just absolutely. I mean, just as a fan of creativity and people, I think for me, you know, sometimes I joke. I just want to be the Rick Rubin of comedy. <laughs> but I think we have a, a similar love of creative people and fascinating and sometimes difficult personalities who have so much to offer. And I, I try to, you know, create an environment where they can do their best stuff. Yeah. Safe, safe place to do their thing. Yeah. How can, how can you get it out of them? And that also sometimes requires tolerating something or letting a moment go and understanding that the creativity also comes from the brokenness for certain people. Yeah. And some of the behavior is not going to be appropriate. Yeah. When you see where it comes from, it makes sense. I can't think of a case where I feel like they're bad people. It's never that. It's always they had a life experience that led them to this place and they're broken. Yeah. And it's only sad for them, but the most therapeutic thing is for them to let it out. And then through that letting it out, they heal and the audience gets to heal too. We, we yeah. all get to like celebrate this humanity and how crazy it is. Yeah, I always think when I'm writing movies that, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out what someone's problem or wound is that that is affecting how they make decisions in life the place that they're stuck in some cyclical pattern and then we imagine what would have have to happen for them to learn the lesson to get over it and so that's what a lot of my movies are is what would have to happen for you to come to your senses yeah you know and it is like a hitting bottom to then see the world from a different angle so you know on, on all the movies my movies and i feel like i'm broken and i'm doing the same thing when I'm making movies that are inspired by things that have happened to me, it's the same as, you know, when I'm talking to P. Davidson about if you were to heal from this grief, from what happened in your family, what, what would make it happen? Yeah. You know, how would you learn the, the lessons that you need to learn? And even funny people, it's about someone resisting the lessons, but yes. you know, uh, cause in comedy you always hear like about Seinfeld, like no learning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so the opposite. And I love it's so Seinfeld. funny. But but I, I do think He's not so broken though. That's the thing. With him it's like the absurdity of it all. Yeah, he he he's got a good handle on it. Well I remember I interviewed him for my for the Sick in the Head book and I asked him about all that and he just said, you know, my parents really they really like trusted me and left me to live my life and do my thing, even as a very young person. So great. And who knows if that was belief in jerry or slightly negligent but as a result he really feels like he can handle everything and he has his own opinions about things and so he doesn't feel the need for the lessons yeah no it seems like that it seems like that works for him how do you meet stiller stiller i was at a taping of elvis costello unplugged wow <laughs> i bet that was great it was fantastic it was for the mighty like a rose album and I remember him singing Sweet Pear and all those great songs. That was, uh, he was with the guitarist. Was it Mark Ribot? Is that his name? Mark Ribot, yeah. Who was Tom Waits' guitar yeah. player for a long time. And I met him online. I was with Dana Gould, the great Dana Gould. And we said hi to Ben. And Ben and I were talking about the fact that HBO wanted him to do a sketch show. 
And I had just done a bunch of stand-up specials with people. I hadn't really done sketch, but we said, hey, let's get together and kick it around. We get together on the first day, come up with an idea, set the meeting, go pitch it, sell it. I mean, we had sold it. People thought we were friends for years and years and years. We had known each other for two weeks. Amazing. And so we did that show and, you know, Ben had a real vision for comedy. Uh, I mean, he, he, he really reinvented a lot of things. I mean, he, he talked about it as, you know, SCTV with money. Yeah. <laughs> they had a little more money to do the sketches and a, a, cine, a cinematic approach to sketch comedy in a way that no one had really aggressively done it. And I learned so much from him. I mean, he, he had already done a sketch show for MTV and it was just, you know, one of the great experiences. I mean, the first big experience. And so we had, you know, Bob Odenkirk and Andy how, Dick. How old were both of you guys at that uh, time? Uh, and Janine, um, I was 24. Yeah. And maybe he was 25. Yeah. And HBO sold it to Fox. So we went from being a cable show to being a network show. Wow. And we were in charge. Neither yeah. of us had ever really done that. Incredible. And so it was a big learning experience and brutal and exhausting to try to make a show because we didn't you know it was before digital cameras it was before digital editing wow so when you would edit it's it was work. on almost like vhs tapes that yeah. you would keep recording over and over and wow. over and everything about it made it harder than yeah. it is today and it was uh just exhausting but but really fun and you know ben's someone who I mean, he found so many of the great Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Everybody. Mean, he's really ground zero for a lot of what's happened in comedy. And I saw him improvising, and I, I learned a lot just watching him improvise because, you know, we would do these sketches where he was an agent, Michael Ferre, like Ferret. <laughs> and he would be talking to someone like, like he would have like Run DMC there. And the joke is that he's pitching them terrible ideas, you know, like, okay, we do, uh, you know, uh, maybe you guys are in Batman, you know, you could play the penguin, you're a little pudgy, you could play the penguin, you know, and, but a lot of the jokes were jokes he was afraid to say to their face. So we would shoot the sketch, run DMC leaves, and then Ben would do the close up again and make all the jokes harsher and, and improvise for, you know, whatever, a half hour straight of improvs and pre-written jokes that we were trying. And that's when I realized, oh, when you shoot, you don't have to just get the scene. You can get the scene plus a lot of other ideas. And in editing, you figure out what worked. So, so much of that came from in your In your movies, is that the way that you do it? And so, it, yeah, that's the way that I do it. I, I, I try to make the scene work. Yeah. And then I every joke I ever wrote for the scene that's not in the script, I bring to the set. Mm -hmm. And then I shoot the scene. And then I loosen it up a little bit. And then I loosen it up a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know. A fair amount of the time, the actor tops the joke. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah, and and when those moments happen where someone just says something you would never have thought of in a million years, no. that's when I'm happiest. Yeah. I used to joke, I want to be like, I want to be the anti-Aaron Sorkin. By the end of this, I would like to have written nothing. I mean, I know that Seth or whoever, yeah. Leslie, can just come up with something I, I would never have thought of. Do they break each other up? Like, if it's yeah. really funny, does it ruin the scene? Some, some people that's the problem like the harvey harvey corman <laughs> issue yeah that that definitely happens where i mean the one that always made me laugh was mo collins uh, was playing a gynecologist and knocked up and she says uh she's like doing a fake vaginal exam and she improvises oh whoops that's not your vagina that's your asshole and 
It was the biggest laugh I've ever heard on a stage from a crew. It just tickled, people lost their shit. Yeah. And then in editing, we were like, you can't say that because no doctor would ever say that. And then right at the very last test, I'm like, let's just slip that in. You know, the movie's pretty grounded, but maybe we, they'll give us a couple of those. Pandemonium <laughs> in the audience. And then we left it in the movie. So great. Yeah, that there's something about going too far. It's like. Yeah, yeah. there's been a bunch of those. That's what a lot of the, the, the full frontal nudity was about. Mm -hmm. That we were laughing about the fact that they never ask men to do it. And so for a few years, like my running gag was, I would like full frontal nudity in every movie. Yeah. You know, so like. It's funny. It's so funny and it's, it's so funny. unexpected. But the crowd really could only handle a certain amount of it. Yeah. When we did, you know, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which Nick Stoller directed, uh, when we did the full frontal Jason, you know, if it's on screen for like five seconds, the crowd laughs. If you leave it up for 10 seconds, they start walking. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing with Walk Hard. We had this sh shot, which really made me laugh. Jake Kazan directed and uh, that we wrote together where John C. Riley as Dewey Cox is on the road having that call that's in every movie where he's talking to his wife but is surrounded by naked groupies and talking about how much he misses her. And we thought it'd be funny if a guy just walks into frame completely naked with his dick out. You don't see his his head just like, like tits down. And in the middle of the call, it's just like, hey, Dewey, we're going to get coffee. You want to get a coffee? And the joke is that he's just there for so long. Like the penis is on screen for so long. He's like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm good. All right, we'll see you. And we showed it to the crowd. And we left it up there for like 30 seconds. And people just stand up. They just, <laughs> they can't, they can't handle it. And then you cut it down to four seconds and they list it as their favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> when you screen your movies for audiences, how different are audiences? I mean, that happens. Usually they're the same, but sometimes you have to switch theaters. So you're like, first screening's in Burbank and the second one is in Orange County and the third one's in Pasadena. And the, they are different. There's different makeups of the crowd, different types of people. And... You know, sometimes if you test really well and you do another test, you're like, oh, God, I hope it doesn't go down. And, you know, sometimes you know you've made the movie better and then the scores go down. And wow. you, have, you have to hope that your partners know it got better. Yeah. Even Because you don't want to be, you know, just listening to anything the audience says. You, you need partners who go, we, we'll, we'll take what we can learn from this, but it, they might have issue with things that we're going to leave because anyone better. Does anyone take the position that we don't do test screenings? Yeah. I who, don't, like, who I does don't think that? Steven Spielberg ever shows test screenings. I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't do that process. I, I doubt Paul Thomas Anderson does it. Some people have friends they really trust. They'll bring in 30 friends yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and have that experience. I, with comedy, you kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way to know, you know how, how that kind of crowd will react. But I mean, thank God those people don't. Yeah. <laughs> like you really, you know, don't want them to. No. I guess there could be, there could be moments where you would go, yeah, that movie, if they put themselves through that, Maybe they would have learned something. But, but for the, the most part, probably In the not. history of comedy, though, you know, the Marx Brothers didn't screen their movies yeah. and get tests. Well, they did something different in the early years, era of the Marx Brothers is they, a lot of those movies were Broadway shows and they would do them live. Mm. And then they would turn it into a movie. Like That's an interesting idea. I like yeah. that idea as a, something to yeah. experiment with. Adam McKay and Will Ferrell wanted to do that with Anchorman 2. They had this idea that they would do it as a Broadway show Great and idea. then adapt it as a movie. Great idea. And then everyone was like, wait a second, so how many years will we make this movie? Yeah. But it was a fantastic it's idea. It's a great idea. That'd be really fun to do. 
that's like that's one of those like breaking the form in a way to yeah. create something new. I yeah. love that. Was SCTV a big deal for you when you were young? Oh yeah. SCTV and Monty Python were so great because they were it was just felt like they were coming from another world. Yeah. Like when I would see Monty Python on PBS in the 70s, mm -hmm. it was like, what is, not just what is a show, what is this world? What are these, look how they're dressed. You know, their references were foreign. <laughs> Everything was weird and they're dressed like women and they're hitting each other with fish and the parrot's dead. And because I, I was probably like 10 years old, mm -hmm. it just felt like fancy too. Yeah. Like these guys are smart, but it's yes. also yeah, silly. The, the language, the language used in those shows was yeah. so elevated yeah. <laughs> compared to every all the rest of the comedy we saw it was not abbott and yeah. costello and sctv was like that too just all the guy caballero and the running of this small town tv station and then they would do like george carlin starring in death of a salesman and stuff like that or, or you know bobby Jerry, Bittman. oh bobby Bittman is the I funniest thing i love bobby Bittman. or just the you know there was that sketch where they're they're doing a game show and everyone is so dumb uh <laughs> But it did feel foreign too. Like, what is it? Who are these people? Because yeah. now, you know, that I'm older, I look back and go, what, what did I want to do? Like, what, what, how did I interpret all of those experiences? Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of it was, oh, I wish I was part of that group. Yeah. I wish I was on Saturday Night Live. I wish I was in SCTV or at least like a cameraman or a, yeah. a writer for it. So I think, like, in my career, I was always trying to create communities of mm -hmm. people to collaborate so oh we're kind of like our little version of a world did you ever meet del close no never met del close always jealous of the people that went through second city and the groundlings i never was able to do that because i was doing stand-up and if you wanted to take classes you had to stay in town for six months or a mm -hmm. year or more mm -hmm. and i was doing stand-up so I, I didn't go take those classes was the word on the street of like going to see del close the thing to do I mean, all the people like Adam McKay, you know, talked about him in uh, reverential mm -hmm. terms. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, it wasn't an experience that I, I ever had. I never even went to Second City till like 15 years ago. But I'm I'm really impressed. I actually did stand up. For, I mean, I'm sorry, I did improv for the first time in my life. I'm 55. Yeah, like two months ago, I went to Ben Schwartz's show at Largo. Yeah, and I thought I was doing stand up on it. And Ben's like, oh, I thought you were just going to come watch the show. We don't have stand-ups open. We just do improv. Do you want to do improv? And I just got, like, the terror. Like, if someone said, you have to go make a speech. Yeah. Like, full terror. And then I just thought about it. And I went, yes. And then I went on stage with him for, like, a 90-minute improv. What was it like? It was so scary in the beginning. Yeah. And I'm a terrible actor, so it's hard for me to fully commit to weird characters and things. But I just said to myself, just do it. Just shut up and just do it. Like, you're funny. How can you not be able to at least be up there at a okay level? <laughs> and then by the end of it, I thought I was decent to the point where I was like, okay, I could do that again at some point. Yeah. That wasn't a humiliation. I got a, I got a, a few laughs, but a completely different experience then stand up because you have to be completely in the moment you can't plan anything and you're really trusting that something's going to come would it help to do a little bit not on stage before doing it <laughs> seriously like if you did yeah. that with your comedy friends yeah. for a half hour a day just to like 
practice those muscles. You I'm know? sure that's what people do in classes. But there's something about the rhythm of the audience and how they're responding that starts programming your head about what to do. I see. And it was very informative, but a completely different experience. It, like doing a guitar solo where you're just like a jazz riff. Yeah. And, uh, but I was proud of myself for doing it. Absolutely. Because there are things like that I've always been so afraid to do. And, it, you know, like we did a benefit with Dave Grohl and Greg Kirsten. He does the Hanukkah sessions. So we, at Largo, it was a night where people perform with them doing songs written by Jewish composers or rock stars. And he said, you know, he's, he said, can you do spinning wheel, which I have done in karaoke. And that's one of my biggest fears, like to stand in front of Greg Kirsten and Dave Grohl and sing spinning wheel while they're playing. And I just said, yeah, just, you, gotta, you can't be a wimp. You gotta, you gotta do it. Even though this is like your worst fear wow. in the world. And then it was really fun. But in my head, I'm like, none of the lyrics will come. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fully black out. So I, I feel like at this age, I'm just beginning to let go of some of the limitations. Not that I'm any good at any of it, but just mentally yeah. to go, well, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. You know, what, what is the What fears? do you have to lose? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun, it's, it's like a funny moment now. That's why I'm like so into your book because I feel like when you've done a lot of things, you can either go, there's nothing left to do or maybe I, I scraped the bottom of, of what I'm capable of or what I have to say or you can take another huge leap into the abyss and go, maybe I'm nowhere near the bottom. Yeah. Maybe I haven't like milked it at all. And if I found the courage, there's another vein of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it's all, it's rooted in our imagination. It's like more like as much as we can imagine, we can go on that adventure. I'm not saying it'll be good, but we never know if it's going to be good. Yeah. It's fun though to make those leaps and just see, try crazy experiments and see where they go. I personally don't do them in front of an audience just because mm -hmm. I've never done hardly anything in front of an audience. I tend to do everything more in a the controlled setting of a recording studio or with friends writing stuff. But it's a fun experience to just see where does it lead? Yeah. What does it get you to? Yeah, it's... Uh it requires so much trust because, you know, spiritually, like when you, you know, write in the book, you know, about all the ideas of how we're all connected and universal intelligence. And, you know, I do have that part of me that believes in all of that. And I have to work to get there. But like with my new screenplay, I'm trying to just dictate it. So I just turn on a tape recorder or I have someone typing. And if I remove the idea of typing, the mechanicalness of that, there's something between my mind and the page mm -hmm. that even typing slows it down yeah that i can try to tap into something and trust it like yes and, and so sometimes when i'm writing I'll, I'll go i'm gonna write this scene in five minutes and i'm just whatever happens let's just like a jazz riff let's see what happens mm -hmm. and there's always something good yeah. but it's hard because at the moment right before you do it i always have a voice that's like don't do it <laughs> don't do it it's not gonna be good none of it's gonna be good why are you why are you writing at all and you know that critical voice mm -hmm. has to constantly be it's not down. you and it's not on your side 
that which voice. Which try to destroy you. Yeah. That's why I do stand-up, because I feel like it's the one place where I'm forced to be completely present. Yeah. And that voice has to disappear. There's no way to to do it. I mean, so when you're, when you're talking into your recorder and you're writing a scene through saying it, are you playing the different characters yeah. or are you describing it or both? No, I, I'm just saying it out loud. So it'd be like, yeah. it'd be as if we're hearing the scene in the movie. Yeah. It's not, you're not described. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like a script. It yeah. sounds like a scene. Yeah. Because what I do is I'll take a day to write all the ideas for the scene and I'll, I'll, you know, a scene may not need more than like six jokes, but maybe I'll write 35 different joke ideas, things that might happen in the scene, but I'm not locking in on exactly what it is. And then when it's time to dictate it, I'll read that and like, maybe I'll highlight three things and then I'll just go, okay, do the scene in real time. And a fair amount of the time, something interesting happens that yeah. you didn't think a way, a way people talk to each other or joke with each other or point something out that if I thought too much about it, I might not make as unique a choice. Yeah. And that's been very helpful, but it's, it's a struggle. And when I'm doing When did you first start now. doing this? When, when was the first time you did this? Sounds fascinating. I remember Matt Weiner from, who did Mad Men told me that he dictated the show. That's, that's how he would write it. And it, that's what Rod Serling did when he did Twilight Zone. And I've done it before with people typing. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I've done it sometimes with people typing, but just sometimes I just take a walk and hit a voice note. But like I was thinking recently, I think I could write the rest of this screenplay in one sitting. That If I had the energy, I could try to just channel the whole rest of the movie. I haven't been able to. Usually I run out of gas at three scenes. Yeah. But there is a part of me that thinks like I could pound coffee and do a Jack Kerouac lunatic, maybe without the meth, and just see what maybe would come with out. The, maybe with the meth. Or with the meth, a little meth, just a little bit of meth. <laughs> but it is that trust that it, you know, like, if Bob Dylan says the reason why he wrote so many songs is they were presented to him. Yes. And he's just typing. Yes. If I can get out of my own way and not think it's ridiculous, yeah. I can try to see what my version of channeling that stuff is and see what makes sense. And so far, I'm halfway through the script. I'm really surprised at how good it feels. That's great. Are you in the mood to channel a scene for us right now? <laughs> what is the scene? What? What, what, what would the scene be? <laughs> hey, look at your list of uh, scenes to write. Maybe um, it can happen in real time right now. It, it, Get one out of the way. Why not? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If I can think of a of a scene. Tell me the characters. In what I'm writing? Yeah. Do you want it to be something that you're writing or you want it to be something else? Might as well get one for the movie. Might as well. <laughs> I don't, I don't Why not? I don't want to give away the movie yet. I don't want to give you away the movie. You think doing a scene movie. would give away the movie? Yeah, probably. But... Yeah, that's a good experiment. Let's see if I have the energy to think of a, of a scene. Let's think about something, maybe um, something based on what what happened today, what happened this morning today with the family. It's, I'm trying to think like where, like if you, if I take a moment to go, like where would my mind go with a scene? Because I was at the Oscar parties. That's a good place. Yeah, those Oscar parties are so funny because you talk to like so many people. Like it's a sea of people. It's everybody that you've ever wanted to talk to or, you know, have watched or fascinated by, and they're all just all in the same room. And then you have to decide, you know, who you're going to talk to. And you're usually hammered. <laughs> Are you comfortable going up to anyone? Well, well, if you're hammered, maybe. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. This applies to you. Okay. 
I saw one of your interviews, maybe it was with Anderson Cooper, and before the interview started, you said, let's meditate for a second, mm -hmm. which also made me think of Gary, because there's that moment in the documentary where you know, him and Ricky Gervais are kind of wrestling and a little bit, and Gary's not being very nice, and then Gary says to Ricky Gervais, like, let's, let's just be quiet for a moment. Can we just be quiet for a moment? Like, he's trying to get him to meditate like you, yeah. but doing it in a very hostile way. Like, it's completely inappropriate and wrong. But there was a camera shooting it from a distance. It wasn't for the show, but I found a camera just covered it. And Ricky Gervais couldn't do it. Like, he was so uncomfortable by Gary. Mm -hmm. And maybe he didn't meditate or, or something. And I always felt bad if Ricky Gervais thought I included it to embarrass him because they, they got in some kind of struggle over, you know, Gary asked the crew to not be in his house when he got there. He was doing an interview for a Ricky Gervais interview show, and then Ricky was going to do a DVD extra for Gary. So Gary comes home, they're in his house. And then Gary's just really passive-aggressive or aggressive with him, and Ricky Gervais keeps kind of smiling and trying to be a normal person and let's do our fake showbiz thing right now. And Gary just goes to like full weirdness, yeah. hostility, yeah. almost like to say, I'm going to out cringe you right now. Mm. Like you think you're the king of cringe? This is how cringe works. And I put it in the movie, not to be embarrassing to Ricky. I put it in the movie to just show how mean Gary could be. Mm -hmm. That Gary, but would, he felt wronged that he you felt to remember what was happening. Yeah. And he, but he doesn't go Buddhist on it. No. He doesn't go, okay, it was a mistake. What do we do? Like uh, Buddhism would be like, well, forgive, and it's not a big deal. And who cares if he's in your house? I mean, that's what Buddhism would be. It wouldn't be like, you know, now we're going to lock horns and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to like peacock. And I remember him talking about it. <laughs> oh, he was and, obsessed with it. Yeah. And just like how he felt, I think he felt like Ricky was somehow challenging him. That's what it was. Yeah. And he came in, it's like, who's this guy to challenge me in my house? And I really don't think that's what was happening. No, but that was his perception but, of what yeah, was happening. Which so is his issue, right? Absolutely. Like people mistreating him. Absolutely. Um, but I saw you at the beginning of the interview with Anderson Cooper. You said, well, let's close our eyes and meditate for a second, like to get present. Mm -hmm. My friend Pete Holmes is really into talking about priming, which I don't know that much about, but the idea of just setting what's in your mind mm -hmm. and the ways it affects other people. So... Before the Oscars, you know, usually I'm really nervous. I get a lot of anxiety because it's too many people. I kind of can't remember anyone's name. <laughs> like that's a big thing with me, which is I'm very bad with names. And sometimes I forget who they are completely. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people saying hello where I'm having a very awkward moment where I have to figure out who they are. Do I tell them I don't know who they are? Just because my brain doesn't work great mm -hmm. that way. And so the whole night's a little scary for me. And I'm also afraid that I'm gonna have a lot of faux pas, you know, that I'm gonna drink and say terrible things to people or just get obnoxious and the next day feel stupid that I was so loud and trying to be funny and maybe not being that funny. And I, sa I sat and thought, okay, I'm gonna have an intention for tonight. And it's corny, but I'm going to just think, I'm so lucky I get to talk to these people. And there is a space that they're all together. And there's so many people I could learn from or just show my appreciation for what they do. And don't make it about you and who didn't like you that night. Can I make it all either to show appreciation or to 
be present with people the way Rick's trying to be with Anderson Cooper, which people could make fun of, like, oh, he's showboating and trying to like <laughs> look like spiritual guy. But actually it works. Like it it really does work. And it really affected me the whole night. Like as the night was almost ending, I thought, oh, I completely forgot to be half in a panic attack tonight. I was just kind of having all these weird conversations and I wasn't thinking about my intention, but it was there. Yeah. For the, you, for the whole you, night, yes, I was... You, pri you were primed. I was primed. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was so weird. And But yet I don't have that much discipline to do it every day. Yeah. But that had a big effect on me because I was like, wow, that was the least anxious I've been at an event like that. It's funny to hear you talk about it because what you're describing, if it were me and I felt the way you felt, which I probably do, yeah. I wouldn't go. And I didn't exactly because I feel the way you feel. Yeah. So it's amazing <laughs> that you put yourself through this. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to think that every person there is as weird and insecure as me. And they might be. That they're all there and they all feel a little weird. And, you know, they're all a little overwhelmed at every turn as every person you've ever seen anywhere. Mm -hmm. That it's just such a strange situation. But what a weird gift to be allowed to whatever, go talk to Taika Watiti or, you know, just like, you know, just have moments with people that you know or admire. But there have been years where I just lock up. You know, like <laughs> Leslie and I were sat at a table for at this Vanity Fair dinner and I was sat next to Nora Ephron and Seinfeld, you know, is at the table and I just got scared and did not say barely a word the entire time. <laughs> like full lock up. Like I've done that a bunch of times where Someone I admire, I, I so admire them that my brain melts down. Yeah. The funniest one was me and Ben wrote a movie for the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger flew us to London in the 90s just to have dinner with them to discuss this movie that might be a concert film with some comedic elements. And at the dinner, I just got so scared and said almost nothing. <laughs> dinner. At one point he was talking about being on the road and... And I'm like a kid. I'm like, yeah, I go on the road sometimes doing stand-up comedy. And sometimes it's really lonely be being on the road. And he just stared at me like, you're not in the same universe as me. Don't compare our experiences. That's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm picturing that um, the dinner sitting next to those people and not not being comfortable to speak. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny thing with comedians. I've been around... Um, groups of comedians and there's a real uh i'm gonna use the word i don't know if this yeah. is the right word but i'm gonna use the word desperation yeah to get their lines in in front of each other yeah it's wild like it's combat sometimes it feels like and, and i'm not talking about this is not on stage this yeah. is not in front of an audience this is just a bunch of guys sitting around a deli table yeah, yeah. and there's a real power game going on sure <laughs> of who can get the funny line in yeah and who can keep the interest of the table even when they're not yeah. being funny that's another part of it this power dynamic that's yeah. going on it's wild and wanting to control the table absolutely and it's like oh, and ne needing to like 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 lions deciding who's in charge yeah like someone has to like defeat everybody else yes and you have to decide if you're in the mood for that you know sometimes like you're just feeling feisty. So you just jump in and everyone's whatever, telling stories or making fun of each other. And other days you just, you're tired 
and you don't want to talk and you're just listening and you go, I'm just not even going to talk. I'm around all these funny people. And there are some people that's a needy thing. Like I can't have this conversation if I don't dominate it. Or I so love this mini crowd. I respect everyone around here and there's nothing I find more fun than trying to make these people crack up. Like it's yeah. the ultimate you know, goal is, okay, here's the legends of comedy. Can I do well in front of them? But you really have to be in, in, a, in a place. I'm rarely in that place. I'm more of, a, uh, of an audience when that happens. Yeah, me too. I, I, like to, I like to be an audience in those situations just because it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. It does feel different than any other social engagement, <laughs> something about comedians getting yeah. together. And you're seeing the best people do that. So, you know, that's like if, you know, the Marx Brothers and the Abbott Costello and the Three Stooges all sat around giving each other shit and being funny. Like, like the people you've seen do that yeah. are like the greatest people ever. Yes. To, you know, to see do that. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was Pleasure. very fun. Pleasure talking about stuff. I'm ready to get a sleeping bag and just sleep right here. Pretty comfy. <laughs> it's not bad.